Very good. So for you, Rich, what is your most cherished PC or console game from your past and why? Hold on, I got a mouthful of almonds. Okay. <laughs> mouthful of almonds, was that an early PC title? Or? <laughs> I created the game myself. It'll be coming out in uh, 2019. You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where Single Banana and I, Gregost81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and played by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. Every episode features input from the community and maybe some guests. For episode 60, we will take a look at what is generally considered to be the first console RPG. Released as Dragon Quest in Japan, we here in the West know it as Dragon Warrior, or at least that's what it was called when we all got our free copies for the NES with our Nintendo Power subscriptions. Here we will discuss our memories with the game as well as if it is worth revisiting now. As the episode goes on, you'll hear special commentary from an old friend of the show and NES expert. Be sure to stay tuned at the very end of the episode for a special audio segment that is very near and dear to my heart in particular. You can listen to our show on Podbean and iTunes where we always appreciate a good review. On Twitter, we are at RFG Playcast and Rich is at The Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thanks again for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Legend.
Chick, 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 chick. Welcome to the show. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know what that was, but all right. A little dubstep. Yeah. Okay, speaking of dubstep, top albums of 1986. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because that's when it hit its peak. People making dubstep weren't even a glint in their father's eye in 1986. All right, so I got a lot of energy because we're doing another morning recording, Rich. I love it. This is glorious. Yeah, my uh, coffee pot was empty when I went downstairs, and I was really heartbroken. And then you tell me that you've got a full cup, which makes it even worse. So... I'm just sucking on water, man. (laughs) I got a cup of coffee that's loaded with some grass-fed butter and coconut oil. Mm -mm. Still drinking it black, man. I'm sticking to it and actually uh, enjoying it now and uh, seeking out better coffees as a result. Oh, yeah. We bounce around to whatever's on sale, but we tend to shop at higher-end stores to begin with. So we get more quality stuff. But yeah, we... We have certain ones we like and certain ones we avoid, but we tend to get whatever's on sale. We're snob-ish, but not super snobby, if that makes sense. Yeah, we don't go crazy. There's several brands that we like, too, but we make sure it's on sale. One of my favorites is probably Pete's. I love the uh, Major Dickinson blend. It's real dark and uh, nice. Nice, yeah. I like the uh, stronger, darker coffees. That's our speed as well. They got a nice French roast, too, that's... uh, Really, really good. Uh, but uh, speaking of things that are going into my body, I guess I would maybe want to give like a little update on my uh, keto diet. I thought maybe popping in every once in a while and letting everybody know how it's going is uh, kind of a more of a motivational tool for me as well. So um, right now I'm down 18 pounds already. And uh, Damn. Last time we recorded, what, maybe three weeks ago, I think. So it hasn't been that long since our last recording. Right. So it's coming off nicely. I'm not cooking things in duck fat and, uh, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. So it's a more of a kind of a modified diet. And my wife actually signed me up for a class next Tuesday night. There's a nice farm that we have out here that sells fresh produce and actually meat. And uh, they're having like a free keto session to talk to uh, mainly men about how to uh, lose weight on the keto diet and, you know, certain things that you can do to help that and giving out a lot of free stuff, too. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to check that out. That's awesome. Keep up the good work. Uh, And again, I'm happy to help and talk about it. And yeah, I like these updates on the show. And I wasn't going to do this, but I'm actually going to brag on something that I did fitness wise. So I like long distance running and I run a 5k loop around my neighborhood almost every Saturday morning. And that's if I don't go to the trail downtown and then I'll run longer. So I have like a 5k loop and then on certain weekends I go way longer, like seven and a half miles or more. But for a long time, like two years, I've been trying to run this 5k loop in under 25 minutes, which is good. That's not like super athlete level, like pretty much if you're a decent runner, you can do that. But for some reason, it took me a very long time to get to it. And about three weeks ago, I ran my 5k loop in 2440. And I was very, very excited. But here's where it gets even better. The following Saturday, I ran it again, and I don't know, something lit a fire in me, and I just had the power. 
I don't know if it was my music or just that I slept real well that night or the weather or whatever. But when I got home and I hit my watch, I had run that 5K loop in 23 minutes and 15 seconds. Nice. I mean, I don't know where to go from there because (laughs) yesterday I said, I'm not going to run this 5K because I don't want to kill myself trying to beat 23.15. So I went to the trail and did a long, slow run instead. So I don't know where to go from here, but on Cinco de Mayo, I'm running a 5K race. So I'm really hoping to just pour it on and blast through it and get a really good time. I would say just push it there, you know, as long as you're comfortable getting it under maybe 24 each time, you know, and not worrying so much about, did you beat the last time you did it? Right. And I would say, you know, push it during that event. But for now, I would just, you know, stick with what you're doing and uh, don't get disappointed if your time's just a slightly higher, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I've been doing this for years. It is a mental game, but, uh, and for me, I only run once a week. I don't, I try not to go crazy with my mileage because I don't want to screw up my knees or any other part of my body, quite frankly. So I do take it easy. I used to run many more miles every day or week, but I scaled it back drastically a long time ago. So I like lifting, but I haven't done it in quite a long time, but I always run. You know what I mean? If I'm on lifting or off lifting or doing body weight exercises i never stop running like i i never have an off season for running so that's my jam that's what i do awesome speaking of jams as i mentioned to you before the call inductions for the rock and roll hall of fame were last night and uh i thought what a better way to go into the concert cast than to talk a little bit about the rock and roll hall of fame and some of the inductees So let me go through the list real quick of people that were inducted. The Cure, Roxy Music, Radiohead, Stevie Nicks, who had already been inducted with Fleetwood Mac, but this was an individual induction. Janet Jackson, Def Leppard, Devo, and The Zombies. So, Sean, I know you didn't know who had been inducted when we'd spoke before, and I said, I'm going to say it for the call. What do you think about that class? Well, I got to say, when you told me we were going to do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, I wasn't enthused about it because I I do kind of feel that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is kind of like this gatekeeping entity that takes away the democratic tastes of the masses and what is out there in the world. It's kind of like the Academy Awards, you know what I mean? It's, It's just some kind of thing that's foisted up by the gatekeepers to tell us what we're supposed to like. However, just now, as you were reading all those acts, I have no complaints about any of them. (laughs) I think that is actually a really good class. I like all those bands. I think they all deserve uh, recognition for what it's worth, and uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I've always felt the same way about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I think it kind of turned for me a little bit the year that Talking Heads, Blondie, Elvis Costello, and, you know, some of those sort of more artsy artists made the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I started thinking, well, this isn't just top 40 music that are, you know, being inducted into the Hall of Fame. So that was nice. I also liked it when Rush got in because I know there was a lot of controversy about whether the Hall of Fame was being very snobbish toward Rush for their type of music, although they had tons of hits and, you know, well-deserved. But as you know, I listen to XM all the time, and Friday, the night of the inductions, 
a guy named Lal Torhurst was on speaking, and he was actually the drummer for The Cure for a period of time. And they were interviewing him, and they wanted to know how he felt about the inductions to the Hall of Fame. And what he said, I thought, was very poignant and just really, really awesome. He said a lot of people kind of poo-poo on these award shows and, you know, thumb their noses at them. But for me, the way I feel about it is this is validation for our fans who have been listening to our music for so long. He said, you know, there's that kid that was out in the Midwest U.S. who was going to school wearing Cure shirts and listening to The Cure, and people were probably making fun of him and thought he was not cool. He said, like, this is like the validation saying that that kid was cool and that kid was kind of ahead of the time when it came to music. Yeah, that's fair. I don't 100% agree with that, but I totally see the angle that he's taking on that. And that's a that's a good way to kind of look at it in a positive light. So that's cool. Yeah. Well, The Cure was one of the classic bands that formed in the 80s, and we've talked about them many times on our show. But for our next segment, we're going to actually look at the albums of 1986, because that is the year that Dragon Quest came out in Japan. Now, The Cure did not publish an album in 1986, but many of our other favorite bands certainly did. So, Rich, we're going to do one of these Albums of the Year discussions again. We did 1989 a few episodes back. I'm going to tell you that when we did 1989, I had a lot of passion for the album releases of that year in particular, and that's why I brought it up as a suggestion for the show. In this case, for 1986... This was kind of your idea. You kicked it to me and I said, yeah, definitely I want to do this. And I found my approach to be quite different because as I was looking at besteveralbums.com and the ranked releases of 1986, I didn't see any of my favorite albums, let's say. So it was a little bit more of research, of trying to listen to new things, of revisiting things that I wasn't super familiar with. And I think this will be an interesting discussion. So we each have our top five. Mm -hmm. And I guess we can get right into it unless you have any further uh, things to add. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say that, you know, I didn't know how this was going to be, you know, like 1986. I don't really know a lot about the albums. But for me, really the research and putting the time into it and listening to these albums and having a kind of concept of when these albums came out and what albums came out in the same year. It's really neat, and uh, I've just enjoyed it so much, and I I enjoyed doing this as much as I enjoyed 1989, actually, and maybe even a little more, because I really had to dig as far as what the albums were, but I'm a little older than you also, and so a lot of these albums really hit home for me. There are a few in there that were instrumental, no pun intended, (laughs) in my development as a person who appreciates music. Very cool. I'm glad to hear that. So you want to kick it off with your number five? Uh, Sure. And I just want to say that none of these are in any particular order. I'm not doing them like one through five. I'm just talking about my top five albums. So let me start with The Smiths, The Queen is Dead. This album is one that I completely love, and I think it's one of the best that The Smiths have ever put out. There's some songs on here that I really, really appreciate. I'll list a few. Big Mouth Strikes Again, Boy with the Thorn in His Side, and uh, There's a Light That Never Goes Out. Those are sort of the highlight tracks on that album, but the whole thing is just really, really good and very much put out at the height of The Smiths' popularity, and this is one that I would say is a must-have. This was the only album that we discussed beforehand, and I said, are you going to put The Queen is Dead on your list? Because I don't want, you know, I don't want to duplicate it. I had a feeling that you would choose that. (laughs) 
And uh, I'll give you a little funny story, too. When I first met my wife, I was really into music. And the Smiths at the time were a band that I had never heard their music. And there was a resurgent buzz on the Smiths in like the Indian punk scenes. So when I first met my wife and we were hanging out, I said... I really want to listen to this band, The Smiths. Do you have any of their music? And she said, yeah, here's their singles or greatest hits or whatever. You can borrow it. And then I was like, oh, this woman is cool. She, <laughs> you know, she has a Smith CD. She must be cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. I really didn't get into The Smiths until I was in college. I'll be honest, in 1986, this wasn't stuff that got a lot of airplay on pop stations. So I didn't really listen to it a lot. My roommate, my senior year of college at the time, was really into The Cure, really into The Smiths, and had a good background in uh, what we would term emo music. I just fell in love with it, man, and haven't stopped listening to it since. Just to be honest, The Smiths have gotten me through some pretty dark times. I mean, a lot of music has that effect on me, but when you listen to music that you can kind of say, it's really depressing, but... I felt the same way at that time, and it's good to know someone else feels the same way I do, and it kind of helps get you through those moments, you know? Yeah, definitely. We've talked about that many times before, and I can totally see how, you know, Morrissey's voice and the lyrics and the tone and mood of a lot of the songs could do that for you. Totally get that. Yeah. All right. So how about you, man? What's your number five pick? So I got Invisible Touch by Genesis Uh, as my number five. So... This one is like hugely nostalgic for me. I still think it's a wonderful album. It's a great poppy album that, from what I understand, Genesis fans like scoff at this album because Genesis (laughs) was a very progressive, experimental, artsy band from the 70s. And then when they lost Peter Gabriel, they came out with this album, which was a very Phil Collins-centered album, and it was too poppy. I don't care about any of that. I love this album. It's one of the first full albums I remember hearing when I was a five or six year old child. And it's just like total ear candy. The title track that it kicks off with the opening track is Invisible Touch, the song. And it's a great song. It sets the tone for the whole album. And uh, I still love this album. I could spin it anytime. And uh I have a feeling you're going to agree because yeah. we've talked about <laughs> we've talked about our fandom of Phil Collins on the show before. Yeah, absolutely. And if I remember correctly, does that album have Land of Confusion on it as well? Yes, it does. Okay. You may not remember this, but there was this show called DC Follies that used to be on this like live action puppet show and it had like all the presidents in it and it was actually the same people that did the Land of Confusion video. You remember Reagan in that video? If you've never seen Land of Confusion, the video, check it out immediately. But on my wall, I've got this like little finger puppet and it's just a Ronald Reagan Land of Confusion head. I'll send you a picture of it, maybe post it up on uh, social media so that other people can see it. But it, it's pretty awesome, man. <laughs> That is awesome. I know the music video, but I didn't realize the kind of history behind it, that there was a production company that had done other work. Uh, But that makes sense for sure. What's your next pick? All right. So for my next pick, I had to go with a rap album and I had a hard time deciding between two albums, but I just kind of went with my favorite and the one that had the biggest impact on me at the time and the one I listened to the most in 1986. And that was Run DMC's Raising Hell. 
I love that album. A uh, few highlight tracks. It's tricky. My Adidas. Walk This Way, which is kind of a song that's been overplayed a bit, and I'm not as big as a fan of it as I used to be. And then You Be Illin' uh, was a great song, too. But that whole album is amazing. And it was the one that really, really set me off on rap music, other than the other album that came out in the same year. And so I don't want to announce that one because it might be on your list, but will definitely be in my honorable mentions if you don't use that one. So uh, do you have any familiarity with uh, Run DMC's Raising Hell? I do, but not as intimately as as it sounds like you do. I like Run DMC, but I'm more of a greatest hits kind of guy with them. I don't think I've ever heard a full Run DMC album front to back. But as it so turns out, my number four pick is almost certainly what you were thinking I was going to pick, and that is License to Ill by the Beastie Boys. You nailed it, man. (laughs) Yeah, so it wasn't technically their debut album because they were like a hardcore punk band before they started doing the rock rap stuff. But License to Ill for certain put them on the map. You know, they were part of the early class of MTV bands who were making videos and the Fight for Your Right to Party video is just iconic and classic. This honestly is not my favorite Beastie Boys album, but as I was looking through the albums of 1986, I thought this just has to go on my list because it's such a landmark and such an important album in their career. It really put them on the map. And they're one of my favorite bands over the years and their career went through so many different phases and they were just so creative and talented throughout. All their different albums are so great and it's kind of cool you know, as we're going to look at Dragon Warrior this month, which is one of those like prototypical early, it's a little bit clunky, like that's how I feel about License to Ill. You know, it's it's old and like that, but it's still great. There's some like key tracks on there that weren't like radio play songs like No Sleep Till Brooklyn. I love a lot. Uh, I think Girls got a little bit of airplay. That's a fun song, too. Yeah, Brass Monkey is on there. That's my daughter's, like, one of her top five songs. She loves that. Brass Monkey? Oh, yeah. I recently... that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) She made a kid play it this Friday. They had, like, electronics day. It was a teacher work day, but she stayed at the after-school program for the whole day. And uh, they could bring electronics, and this kid brought his cell phone, and she's like, you got to play that Funky Monkey song by the Beastie Boys. (laughs) And, um, yeah, she loves it. And I recently just purchased solid gold it's like their greatest hits to play in the car for the kids and i don't want to go into that right now i've got it on the outline to talk about it but i'm not going to do it i'm going to save it for next month because there's a specific reason for that but yeah my kids they all love the beastie boys so uh it's a lot of fun one of the things she mentioned to me that uh, kind of took me by surprise she said dad what i really like about the beastie boys is how one will say one line one will say the other you know, they'll just keep going like the three of them instead of someone doing like a bit and then the next person stepping in and then the next person. I don't know how to describe it. I don't think I ever heard any rap that was like that at the time. You know what I mean? It was sort of fresh that one would say one line, one would say another, and then the other would kind of finish it instead of these long segments. Yeah, they do it like almost sometimes word to word, they'll pass off. And they weren't the only ones to do it, but there were other groups who were doing One guy would take one verse, the next guy would take the next verse. But yeah, the BC Boys were just really mixing it up. And again, as much as I love License to Ill, Paul's Boutique is the album that just really 
uh, they blew up all of their techniques to like total perfection. So, but that was not released in 1986. So let's get off of that one. All right, man. Uh, so my next pick is a metal album. Of course, I had to have a metal album in here. I'm a big oh. metal fan. And I don't think there's any better album that came out in 1986 and a more defining of a band than Metallica's Master of Puppets. This is one that I listened to when I was in Boy Scouts, <laughs> you know, when I was like 11 or 12 years old. It was like a little tape that everybody would just sort of pass around. And my parents were pretty strict about what I listened to. So, you know, with the metal stuff, they weren't such a huge fan. They they were okay if me listening to like the hair bands. But Metallica was this sort of heavy, devious treat that uh, I really enjoyed. And um, I basically kind of hid my cassette from them so that I could, you know, pop it in and listen to it. And uh, it's got some great songs on it. Just a few keys, Battery, Master of Puppets, Welcome Home, Sanitarium. And then another song called Disposable Heroes, basically named after our good friend Stephen, who put, not named after him, but he took his <laughs> name from that song, right? Uh, really cool album. This was their first without Dave Mustang. And uh, between that and Ride the Lightning, they're my two favorites. And for a while it was Kind of hard to pick, but I think if I had to say which one was better, I think Master of Puppets ultimately wins out. Very cool. You know, I'm not much of a metalhead, but I think that Master of Puppets is an album that I can listen to. And I'm not super familiar with all of Metallica's stuff, but I know as far as their older albums that this is one of the highlights. And I do like it a lot. So good choice. And I was counting on you to pick... Because there was a lot of heavy metal that came out in 1986. Yeah, there's a lot of good heavy metal, yeah. So my number three is not even close to heavy metal. And this is an (laughs) odd choice because for me, this album was recommended to me all the way back when I was in high school. And when I listened to it at the time, it did nothing for me. And I remember listening to a couple songs and just giving it back to the friend who had lent it to me. But when I saw it on besteveralbums.com, 1986 albums, I said, let me go back and give that another listen because the band is highly revered in the indie space. The band is Yola Tango. The album is Ride the Tiger. Okay. So I listened to this album just very recently doing research for this show and I fell in love with it. I've listened to it again just for the last couple days, it was enough to leave such a big impression on me that I'm really excited to give this band another chance and to let this album kind of stir in my imagination because I really, really like it. And I kind of wish that I had given them a fair shake back in the day, but it remains now for me to go and listen to their stuff. So that's pretty cool. That's cool, man. I did not realize that that band stretched all the way back to 1986. You know, when I was in college, 95 through 99, a lot of my friends were listening to Yala Tingo, and they would play at the Cat's Cradle a lot, which is in Chapel Hill. And, you know, my friends would go see them, but I, I never really picked up any of their music, man. So I'll definitely have to check that one out. Yeah, I would recommend it. I think you would like it. Cool. All right, man. Like you, my next pick is probably as far away from metal as you can get. And this is an album that I had really never listened to. I'm a big fan of this band, and I have a lot of their older stuff. 
but I hadn't listened to this album from 1986. And this project that we're doing kind of gave me an incentive to really listen to the album. And this is sort of like a nice gem that I found doing my research. And the band is Kraftwerk, and the album is Electric Cafe. If you're into electronic music, if you like Kraftwerk, man, this is one that I can highly recommend. Probably one of my favorite albums by the band is Computer World, which I think is exceptional. But like I said, this is one I'd never listened to and uh, just a huge fan of this album. That's awesome. Over the years, I've always wanted to dive a little deeper into craft work. You know, when you first look them up, everybody just says Trans Europe Express, and that's probably their most well-known album. Yeah. It's the only one I've ever listened to, so... Dude, get Computer World. Try that out, man. It's it's really good, especially for, like, video game fans. A lot of video game sounds, you know, speak and spell, calculator. The cool thing about them is they didn't only use instruments that we know. They would, like, create their own instruments to make different sounds and stuff, which makes them really really neat that sounds awesome i will definitely take a deeper dive i've been into electronic music for a very long time and i haven't given them their due you know yeah so i'll go into my second to last pick here so this is one that's a little again outside of my wheelhouse but this is an album that i've been listening to for a long time a friend of mine in the early 2000s when I was first like collecting music digitally and I think it was when I first had like iTunes so I was like borrowing people's CDs and ripping them onto my computer and using Napster and having a just a a bunch of digital music and somebody gave me the album Strong Persuader by Robert Cray and I don't know any of Robert Cray's other music. I know he's like a legendary blues and R&B musician, a legendary guitarist, and a great singer. And the album Strong Persuader came out in 1986, as it happened. So I knew as, as soon as I realized that, that this was going on my list. It's just a really good, smooth blues rock album. It's recorded in a way that is so crystal clear. You can hear every note from every instrument, and Cray just plays guitar so smoothly. The whole album is just smooth and buttery, and his voice is great. It's the kind of thing where every song tells a story, and they're all about heartbreak and double cross and you know these kind of trials and tribulations of romance. And I tried to find this, but the person who gave me this album told me at the time, and now I can't verify this, but this is a really cool story if it's true, that Robert Cray, when he recorded this album, showed up at the recording studio, recorded every song on guitar in one take, and went home for the day. And the album, (laughs) like his guitar tracks were done. So I don't know if that's true, because I I looked really hard to try and verify that story. Respect. (laughs) Yeah, but that's the kind of musician that the dude is. And this is, it's just such a good album. Yeah. I've never heard of the guy, and uh, this is one that you've got me excited to check out. So, uh, yeah, man, I'll do that, and then you check out some craft work, and uh, maybe we can come back to it at some point. Awesome. All right, man. So, you know, before the call, I was talking about there's two that I'm having a problem, like, deciding between. So I want to let you go first, just in case you end up picking one of them, so I don't have to make it a double pick at the end. So uh, if you don't mind, can you do your number one before I go? With pleasure. So... 
This album, you'll be interested to know, is the only album I own on vinyl. This, uh, this album comprises the entirety of my vinyl collection, and I don't even own a turntable. And that is Evol by Sonic Youth. Okay. Growing up, they were one of my favorite bands. And their albums from the mid-80s, I think, is the best of their body of work. They had some great albums in the 90s as well. But again, they were just really putting out their best stuff in the, in the 80s. They had albums like Evol and Sister and Bad Moon Rising. Mm-hmm. These are all their just seminal works. And Evol... It starts out with uh, a song called Tom Violence, and it just has this kind of sweeping, swaying guitar that kind of lulls you into this groove. And then Thurston starts singing, and the lyrics are just very poetic and imaginative. So, like, I don't really like, like, esoteric, like, out there lyrics, but for some reason with the songs on this album, and maybe it's nostalgia... I just kind of try and decipher what they're singing about because there are stories behind the songs. And when I was really, really into Sonic Youth, I read uh, a couple books about them. And so I I got a deeper look into those lyrics and what the songs actually were. There's actually another kind of urban legend. Well, it's not a legend. It's true. The song In the Kingdom, number 19, it's a spoken word piece by Lee Ronaldo. It's not acapella spoken word. There's music to it. He's speaking over the music about D. Boone's fatal car crash. D. Boone was a singer from the Minutemen who died in a car crash. They were label mates on SST with Sonic Youth. And Lee Ronaldo did this song in the kingdom number 19. He's doing the spoken word. And there's this one point in the song where you can hear him scream, wait like i don't want to scream into my mic but it's like wait and then there's this popping sound what that was is that as lee ronaldo was in the recording booth recording his spoken word thurston moore busted into the recording group and threw lit firecrackers at him (laughs) and they left this on the album and as the song goes on and he's reciting this spoken word poetry that he wrote about his friend dying in a car wreck and then this literal explosion in the recording booth, as I read about this uh, account of what was happening, it, it almost destroyed their friendship uh, mm. between Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo. Lee was so upset that Thurston did that to him that it almost broke up the band. It's just, wow. it's just a really fascinating story. And to be able to listen to the song and hear that on record, and it's only like, you know, two or three seconds of the song, you hear him scream way and then pop, 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 pop. But to know what it actually is, is just... It's um, really fascinating. And uh, so anyway, (laughs) Evol by Sonic Youth, one of my favorite Sonic Youth albums, and just a great starting point if you've never heard the band, I think. Cool, man. I'll have to check that one out. I honestly had really never listened to Sonic Youth probably until the 90s. I saw them in 1995 on a Lollapalooza tour. And they put on a good set, and I am familiar with the album Daydream Nation, which I I really like a lot. So, uh, yeah, man, that's one I'll have to throw on. Well, man, you did not hit one of my two, so number five is just going to have to be a split for me. I hate to do this, but (laughs) I have to. I could not pick between the two, and when I tell you who they are, you'll know why. The first album is Madonna's True Blue the songs from the Papa Don't Preach, Open Your Heart, Live to Tell, True Blue, and La Isla Bonita. 
I mean, a solid album all the way through. And like we said, with the 1989 best of that we did, Like a Prayer was probably her last great album, in our opinion, of course. But yeah, this was one of her best, and uh, I could not leave it out. Likewise, I could not leave out Janet Jackson's Control. Again, a list of the songs, Control, Nasty, What Have You Done For Me Lately, Pleasure Principle, When I Think Of You, and Let's Wait A While. I mean, solid as well. If I had to pick one that I would rather listen to than the other, I'm probably more of a Madonna fan. Just her entire discography, I'm probably more a fan of than Janet's, but I really don't see how you can really pick one over the other for best pop radio album of the year. Very good. I agree completely. True Blue is probably lower on my tiers of favorite Madonna albums, but it's certainly a classic. And Janet, same thing. I'm not super into her. Yeah, I don't have too much more to say about Janet. I like her, but I wouldn't sit and listen to her albums too often. So, but totally understand your split decision there. And uh, you didn't go with what I thought you were going to go with. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, I guess I can make that one of my honorable mentions. And it also contains my favorite song of the year. So let's go ahead and get into it, though. You start us off. Cool. So this one almost made my list, but it was kind of in between this and Genesis. And that's Peter Gabriel's album, So. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. Very good album, and it contains my song of the year, one of my favorite songs, Sledgehammer, which I just think, oh man, such power, such energy. You turn it on, you can just rock out. It's just, mm, you can really feel it. The rest of the album is is good. Even the deep cuts are decent. Um, It also has um, big time. So those are the singles. But yeah, Sledgehammer, song of the year, and... uh, that album is a, gets an honorable mention. Very cool. All right, so uh, I'll go ahead and go into my song of the year. It was actually on one of the albums that I've already mentioned. It was a toss-up between three, and I'll, I'll save those for later as I'm talking about those albums, though. But, you know, I don't want to talk too much about my personal life, but uh, I went through some stuff last year, and you and I have talked about this off the air. And uh, I tell you, man... The song There's a Light That Never Goes Out is one that just completely hit home for me. And I would just put the CD player on repeat and um, just listen to that Smith song over and over and over and over again. There was a few choices of songs that I really, really like. But, you know, personally, there's not another song that was put out in 1986 that I could say has had such a profound impact and been such a healing song for me than that one. Awesome. Classic song. Great choice. Yeah, thank you. All right, some more honorable mentions. Do you want to do a few more? Do you have any? Well, Shonen Knife came out with an album called uh, Pretty Little Baka Guy, which is one of their earlier works that I would recommend. It's more like thrashy punk than any of their stuff. That's when they were really young and scrappy and a uh, really good album. Uh, Life's Rich Pageant by R.E.M. Yeah. Uh, Not one I'm super familiar with, but again, this is the era when R.E.M. was just cranking out classic album after classic album. So uh, that's a good one. Uh, That's that's it for my honorable mentions. 
It was hard enough for me to come up with a top five, to be quite honest. <laughs> I got you, man. I have several honorable mentions, and a lot of it's because there's a lot of my favorite bands that put out albums during that time. Talking Heads is one of my favorite bands, and True Stories was actually a film that David Byrne did, and it had some classics in it, uh, Love for Sale, Wild Wild Life. That was one of the songs that I was going to pick from for my favorite songs. That song completely encapsulates the 80s and is such a fun song. And then City of Dreams. Another band that I love and have really gotten into in the last two years is Pet Shop Boys. They put out the album Please, which has um, classic tracks, Opportunities, West End Girls, and Suburbia on it. One that I don't think a lot of people remember from 86, but was one of my favorites as a kid, was Crowded House's self-titled album. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, which had yeah, the hits. Almo- I'm sorry to cut you. I'm so no, sorry to no, cut no, you no. Off, Go ahead, that please. That one almost made my list, and I'm glad you brought it up because I forgot it as an honorable mention. I think people don't realize that album is great front mm-hmm. to back. Yes, it is. Yes, it has its singles, but every song on it is great. So, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. Cool. And I totally agree. The whole album is fantastic. But the songs that got radio play that people would probably remember most are Don't Dream It's Over and Something So Strong were the two singles, I believe. Yep. Paul Simon probably put out his greatest album ever that year, which uh, oh, Great yeah. Graceland. How did that not make your list? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love Paul Simon and I've seen him in concert, but... You know, as I was kind of looking through this, I was looking like at genres. So there's different things that I thought fit the categories a little bit better. You know, I wanted to have the Smiths, of course. I could not pass that one up. I wanted to have a rap album. I wanted to have a metal album, uh, you know, Kraftwerk doing the electronic thing and then a pop album. So it just kind of fell out of grace, no pun intended. Great songs on that. Graceland, You Can Call Me Al, which was probably the most famous. Uh, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, another great song. And then sort of the highlight of the metal albums, just because I have to, uh, Judas Priest Turbo came out that year. Motorhead's Orgasmatron is a fantastic album. Slayer's probably most famous album, Rain and Blood. Iron Maiden, Somewhere in Time. Actually, Wasted Years was one of the songs that I was choosing from for my top three. And then um, an album that was really important to me, Night Songs by Cinderella. I don't know if I've told this story on the air before, but uh, when my brother was born, he was um, 12, almost 13 years younger than me. But because I wouldn't feel left out because he was getting all the attention in the hospital, my parents bought me a cassette of Night Songs by Cinderella from him to me. (laughs) Nice. And then the last album that I wanted to mention is a country album. I know a lot of our listeners probably don't listen to country music, but I've always been a huge fan of Dwight Yoakam. And Guitars, Cadillacs, etc., etc. is a fantastic album. It includes the songs like Honky Tonk Man, Guitars, Cadillacs, and Heartaches by The Number, which um, uh, was a song by Harlan Howard, but it was also covered by Buck Owens, who was a um, great friend of Dwight Yoakam's. And there was actually an urban legend that went around for a while that Buck Owens was uh, Dwight Yoakam's father, but that is not true. So I just thought I'd throw in that little tidbit of trivia to end it out. Very good. All right, so does that conclude our Albums of 1986 discussion? That was a lot of good stuff, good recommendations. I I got some stuff I want to hear now, and uh, hopefully our listeners get a little illumination or a little validation of their own (laughs) tastes either way. Uh, I love doing these Albums of the Year things, and we'll have to uh, do another one a little down the road. Absolutely, I'd love to.
the concert cast has become a regular installment in the show rich we're almost becoming the anime cast at this <laughs> point because it seems like we're talking about anime every month and i for one do not have any problems with that <laughs> i don't think i could handle it man i don't think i could keep up uh the music stuff i can do but uh yeah i don't think i could keep up the anime but i do agree i have really enjoyed talking about anime and i sent you a uh, text the other day with a photo that I had taken of a DVD that I picked up, and that was Ninja Scroll. And I remember this as being one of my favorite animes, and the one that really kind of got me introduced to anime, along with Battle Angel, as I've mentioned before. And you said this is one that you haven't seen, is that correct? I have not seen it. I actually watched half of it this morning, and I'm enthused, and I will watch the other half later today, and it's quite enjoyable. Have you watched it yet? I mean, recently. No, 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 I have not, and I I would maybe want to talk about this on the next show if we could, so uh, I'll put it on my list to rewatch and, you know, see if it holds up, and uh, we'll give it a shot. For sure, and I'm going to give you and our listeners another piece of homework, because I had myself an anime pickup and I figure why not mention it now because I proposed to you to watch it for this episode and neither one of us had time (laughs) so by next month we are going to talk about a film called Perfect Blue yes because this movie after years and years of waiting finally got a North American Blu-ray release and Satoshi Kon's movies are rare on any kind of physical media. The only one that's kind of readily available is Paprika, which has been out on Blu-ray for quite a number of years. But as far as Perfect Blue, Tokyo Godfathers, and his other films, Millennium Actress, you have to shell out to buy some DVD that's really rare and out of print to find. So I am so happy that Perfect Blue finally came out on Blu-ray and I was able to add it to the collection. And on our show and when I was on uh, Retro Fandango, I was talking about all these classic anime films, uh, Ghost in the Shell and Akira. And I, you know, I got to shout out uh, all of Hayao Miyazaki's movies, uh, the Studio Ghibli movies, even though I'm not the hugest fan. I got to give them their props for being the all time anime greats. However, for my money, any of Satoshi Kon's films should rank as absolute must-sees in the anime medium. And 
perfect blue. It, it stands shoulder to shoulder with Ghost in the Shell and Akira. And I can't wait for you to see it. I can't wait to watch it for like the 50th time on my <laughs> brand new Blu-ray. And uh, I can't wait to talk about it next month. Yep. And uh, I have not ordered it yet, but I am going to get on that today since it is out. I was waiting for the paychecks to come in before I put uh, some money down on that one. It's not a very cheap Blu-ray, but one very much so worth having. I don't remember a whole lot about it. I just remember that I loved it and uh, it was a fantastic film. And I did want to mention two years ago at Retro World Expo, I got to meet the Pocky X and we went out to dinner at a barbecue joint out there and just a big group of us and I got to sit with him and we just started kind of discussing anime, which is odd because I haven't seen a lot of anime. I'm not a huge anime enthusiast, but I did mention Perfect Blue and his eyes just perked up. And it just immediately started a conversation and a friendship between the two of us. So uh, as soon as I saw that it was coming to Blu-ray, I definitely posted about it on Twitter and I tagged him. And uh, we might have to get a little sound clip from our buddy Pocky X uh, regarding uh, Perfect Blue and his thoughts on it for next time. Oh, I would love that. I yeah. love these, uh, what we're doing here with these little sound bites from everybody. What a good idea that was, Rich. I, I, this, is, this is great for the show. I love it, too. Cool. All right. Well, speaking of like new releases and pickups, you had the idea to kind of focus our news segment on new releases. You want to explain this a little bit? Yeah, uh, I just wanted to kind of bulk up our news section and maybe talk a little bit more about kind of what's going on, what things are being released, any type of console-related news is out there. And um, yeah, I just thought that maybe this month we could just talk about some of the March game releases and uh, want to pick your brain and kind of get your thoughts on anything that you might be interested in or that I might be interested in picking up. I'll just name them off really quick. Devil May Cry 5 has come out, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, Yoshi's Crafted World, The Division 2, Dead or Alive 6 are sort of the highlights of uh, what's come out, even though, you know, there are several more. Yeah, this is interesting. And for me, I've, I think I've mentioned this a few times on the show and our listeners who are familiar with my personality is that I almost never get excited about new releases. It's super rare, you know, and I've used the example of Persona 5. You know, when I knew Persona 5 was coming out, I followed it, I pre-ordered it, all that jazz. Mm -hmm. And the only other game that is coming that got an official release date very recently is the Kill La Kill game that is coming out in July. And I'm trying to decide now whether I want to get it for the PS4 or the Switch. Who knows? Maybe I'll get it on both just because <laughs> I am a giant nerd and Kill a Kill is like <laughs> my favorite thing of all time. But when it comes to new releases, you know, I am a cheap ass gamer. You know, I want to get right. something a few months after it comes out and pick it up on the cheap or get it digitally or even wait till it's on PlayStation Plus or Games with Gold and get it for free. But on this list, Yoshi's Crafted World kind of popped out to me because I'm always looking for Switch games, and I just recently played Poochie and Yoshi's Woolly World on the 3DS, which was a port of a Wii U game, and I enjoyed that quite thoroughly. So Yoshi's Crafted World here is the one that piqued my interest. What about you? You in for uh, Sekiro? 
<laughs> uh, I'm like you, man. You know, I could have the nickname the Gamefly guy because what I do is I wait to see like what type of reviews the game's getting. And when I say reviews, I don't mean like online reviews. I'm talking about like friends, people from the site will say, oh, this is great, you know, whatever. And with Sekiro, you know, I can't really take an opinion from Duke Togo because he's going to love it anyway. So, you know, if Crabmaster likes it, thinks it's a cool game, you know, I might get it. Sorry, Duke. <laughs> <laughs> you're the from software guy man you're the champion and i and i get it and that's cool but uh you know i'll probably pick that up when it comes down you know maybe to the 15 to 10 dollar range the top for me on new games is probably 30 bucks and i usually like to standard 20 with new games so i usually just wait for stuff to come down in game fly i definitely agree that yoshi's crafted world will be a cool game i don't have a switch yet so that probably doesn't pique my interest as much but it's one that i would see adding to my collection down the road. I knew that you would probably say that that one would be one you would be looking forward to. And then also maybe Devil May Cry 5. I didn't know what your thoughts were on that. I thought that maybe you were a bit of a fan of that series. No, not really. However, one of the games that I've played and I'll talk about in a few minutes with What Are You Playing is related to the Devil May Cry series. And my interest in playing a mainline Devil May Cry has been more peaked because of things that I've been playing recently, and I'll explain that in a little bit. All right, cool. Yeah, we might have to look at playing that one down the road. I know we say that quite a lot, but uh, I'll go ahead and tell our listeners that Sean and I have pretty much mapped out our entire play schedule for the rest of the year already. It's so great. (laughs) Oh, man, it's so good. I'm so pumped. So I did have this on here. Is there anything that you're looking forward to in April? I mean, it doesn't have to be that you're going to buy it when it comes out, but it might be something you might pick up down the road. I don't know if you've looked at the April list or not. Unfortunately, no. Like, again, I don't really look at release calendars. I do hear game announcements on podcasts, and uh, obviously I hear on certain shows or YouTube videos of games that are coming out or have come out recently, but if you ask me, like, what's coming out in April, I have no idea, so (laughs) it's it's hard to get enthused about anything when I don't know, I'm not paying attention, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Just kind of looking over the list the other day, for me, I noticed a game that I've honestly been waiting for to come out. And this may be quite a surprise to many of our listeners. I'm not a big fan of zombie games and things of that nature. I just think it's been overplayed. But over the past several years, with Sony's presser, they have really been pushing the game Days Gone. And I think it looks really, really cool. Again, it's going to be another one of those $20 Gamefly purchases after the hype wears off. But uh, yeah, that's one I'm definitely going to purchase and uh, definitely interested in checking out. So just wanted to give it a mention. That could be cool. That is one that I would wait to see reviews on. That looks like it could be either one of the coolest games you ever played or it could be a total dud piece of garbage game. So I'm actually interested to see how that one turns out once it gets released. (laughs) Yeah, just the idea of like zombie swarms coming at you 90 miles an hour brings a level of excitement to me that most zombie games don't. And so, uh, yeah, definitely interested in... uh, Again, getting reviews from uh, friends, people on social media, and uh, possibly buying that one, at least down the road. Cool. All right, man. Well, let's do our pickups. What do you think? You want to go first? Sure. I got some really good ones again. Awesome, man. I'm just spending all kinds of money like crazy. I don't care. (laughs) Last year, it was like, I got nothing. This year, it's like, wait a minute, you're outdoing me. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, well, again, I'll just reiterate what I said last month, which is that I'm trying to downsize my collection in general, so I'm selling off a ton of stuff. So I just have Boku bucks in my PayPal from eBay and constantly, and I just have this money. Honestly, I should be an adult and start siphoning it back into my <laughs> bank account. Where's the fun in that? Yeah, There's no fun in adulting. On video games and t-shirts, <laughs> you know what I mean? So You keep that Peter Pan attitude, man. Don't give there in. You go. So I actually, um, I can plug not an article that I did, but Bickman 2K, our friend Adam on the site, did a profile of me for his series, The People of RF Generation. And I've always wanted to do one of these, and I finally was asked, and I was thrilled to do it. So if you go back on the site, you can find my profile that I wrote up uh, based on his questionnaire, which was a lot of fun to do. But one of the things he asked me is, what is on your wish list? And I thought about it, and I don't really have that many things on my wish list because over the years, I've been collecting for so long that I've accumulated all the things I've ever wanted, which is a glorious situation to be in. Mm -hmm. So I tried to just come up with something, and I said, well, I have most of what I want, but I kind of want a Wii U. It's the only major console that I don't own. So... A couple days later, I had planted it in my own head that I need a Wii U. So I was on eBay and just, <laughs> I put a bid on a Wii U on an auction that was ending in like a half an hour. And I thought, wow, this price is so low. I'll never win it at this. You know, people who use eBay know this feeling. You go on, you find something, you put some low bid on it and you say, okay, I'll get outbid. That was fun. You know? <laughs> yeah. So then... 45 minutes later, I look at my phone. You won this Wii U auction. So I said, okay, I'm getting a Wii U. So I got my Wii U. That's my major pickup for this month. And I got to tell you, I love it. I love the Wii U. There's a, a few reasons for this. And I already have a Switch, by the way. And I've, I haven't talked a lot on the podcast, but I've talked amongst friends how I don't play my Switch too much because I prefer portable gaming on the 3DS and the PlayStation Vita. However, I got my Wii U and I fell in love with it. One of the reasons is the games are dirt, dirt cheap for the Wii U. Yeah. And it's a great time to collect for the Wii U. And even the console itself, if you don't have the console, if you're patient and you look on eBay, you can pay less than 100 bucks for a complete console. And the games, I have gotten so many games that my Wii U collection within <laughs> like the first couple weeks of having it has outpaced some of my other console collections uh, just because the games are pennies on the dollar versus these switch ports or any other kind of uh, xbox 360 ports or anything else but some of the highlights i got xenoblade x i got tokyo mirage sessions i got all the mario games i got bayonetta 2 i got even deeper cuts like the lego city game I even got like Transformers Prime. You know, I watch one YouTube video on it and it's like, oh, it's a decent beat em up and it's $2 on eBay. Okay, I'll get it. Unless it's like a noteworthy game, like I got uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild for the Wii U, 
because it's about half the price of the Switch version. But I wanted to get that one in the case with everything and have a nice copy of it. But a game like Transformers Prime or Lego City, just give me the disc. I want a loose disc. I don't need space being taken up on my shelf. So I actually will look for the absolute cheapest loose disc copies. So I have like like 30 Wii U games now. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. And before I go into my next pickup, I want to know, Rich, we've talked about this before. Are you any closer to getting either a Wii U or a Switch? I think I'm closer to getting a Switch than I am to getting a Wii U. Um, I just don't really know what titles that I'm specifically interested in in the Wii U that are not coming to the Switch. So... If anyone like wants to put in our comments section or find me on social media and discuss why I should get a Wii U, I would definitely love to hear it. But as of now, it's not a system that I have any interest in. The main selling point of Wii U over a Switch is the affordability. Yeah. So, for example, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild cost me $30 on the Wii U. It's about 60 on the Switch. Switch games, there are no cheap Switch games. It's called the Switch tax for a reason, because <laughs> any noteworthy game or first-party game that you want to get is going to be at least 40 or $50, if not full price, $60. Those games on the Wii U, even though... Okay, so like Mario Kart, you don't have the DLC. It's not the deluxe version of Mario Kart, but it's going to be way cheaper than the Switch version. So that's just something to keep in mind. The vast majority of the games that I bought, three exceptions, Breath of the Wild, Xenoblade, and Tokyo Mirage were 30 bucks a piece. I mean, Xenoblade and Tokyo Mirage are the only JRPGs on the console, so it mm-hmm. stands to reason that they're going to hold a little bit of their value. The rest of the games that I got, and again, I got like 30 of them, all were less than $10. Yeah, and I understand that concept, but the way I collect, and at the same time, by the time I'm ready to buy those popular titles on the Switch, they'll be $10 as well. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's not a rush for me to go out and purchase a Switch, even though it's something that my kids, if they want it, then that's what I would get them, you know, for Christmas or, you know, birthday or something like that. That's why I've kind of been waiting on them to do it. That's why I've not made the jump into going and getting a Switch on my own. I can wait it out. I don't really care to play a lot of modern games. And if I do, I'm going to make sure that I'm getting them for a good price and not overpaying for them at retail. I can't remember the last time I bought a game at retail. Well, I hope you're right, and I would love to see the day when Switch games start coming down in price. I think it might take until after Nintendo makes their next console. Oh, yeah, it will. And we we have to hope that the ones that we're looking for are not super collectible and harder to find (laughs) anyway and holding on to their value. But I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, well, even if they hold on to their value, it's still them holding on to a value which I would have paid the same price as I would pay buying it new. So for me, it's just a waiting game. That's just how I collect, you know? That's fair. Well, let me wrap up my pickups with some other Nintendo hardware and again, some more eBay carelessness. So, <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So another piece of hardware that I wanted to add to my collection 
recently, we talked in our January episode about handheld gaming, and I'm an avid, avid handheld gamer. I am always playing something on a handheld, and I love modern handhelds, the 3DS, Vita, PSP, the DS, all of them. I love them all. I'm constantly playing something. I did not own a new 3DS, either a standard new 3DS or a new 3DS XL. And for those people who don't know, if you're listening to this, you probably know the idiotic naming conventions of (laughs) Nintendo. New is a kind of model name for their 3DS that has updated specs and a right thumbstick even though it's it's just like a little pencil eraser, but it does give you right stick functionality. Anyway, I didn't have one. I thought, let me strike out on eBay and try and get one. So I put in an offer, again, a lowball offer that I thought the seller is going to come back at me with something higher. This offer is like an insult on a new 3DS Animal Crossing Happy Home Designer Edition. <laughs> so... I put that offer in and I think, okay, that'll get rejected if he even gives me the time of day to do a counter offer. So in the meantime, I went to another auction for a a new 3DS XL, just a normal red one, no fancy additions or anything. And I put in a lowball offer on that one. Well, by the end of the day, both offers had been accepted. So... <laughs> No counter offers, no messages, just they both accepted my offers, which is great because I got them both at a great price, but then I had two new 3DSs. So once again, as last month was an embarrassment of riches with PlayStation Vitas, this month my 3DS collection has increased from two 3DSs to four 3DSs. Freak, dude. I love it, though. I love it. <laughs> I'm glad, yeah. I want to do, um, tell me if you'd be interested in this, and our listeners can tweet at me or message me or whatever. I want to do like a video tour of my handheld collection and put it on YouTube. Yeah, and actually put it on the front page, man. Yeah, yeah. That'd be great. That's one of my monthly installments. But Maybe talk about the differences and everything in between all the systems. I think that, like you said, there have been so many 3DSs put out that uh, it gets a little confusing at times. Yeah, the ones I have are so cool. The even the the Animal Crossing one, I don't I don't know the first thing about Animal Crossing. I was going to ask you that. No, nothing. It's it's not something my wife played the GameCube one and loved it, but I've never been into it. But the graphic on the faceplate is so cute. I love it. It's just colorful and pleasant and um it's funny because when I won the normal new 3DS, I thought, "Damn it, like I don't like smaller screens i really like an xl like i don't even play my ds Lite that often because i almost insist on playing the dsi xl if i'm playing ds games because of the bigger screen so i was like why did i buy a normal size new 3ds but as i've been messing with it i actually find the screen size to be quite sufficient so i'm enjoying it and i don't have as much buyer's remorse now that i have it in my hands which is a, a really good thing yeah, when you make those kind of bids, you just have to expect that maybe you might win both and 
you know, you really can't be disappointed if you don't, you know, <laughs> so yeah. especially at such a good price, like you said, I mean, how can you pass even both of them up? So that's, that's awesome news. And speaking of handhelds, I wanted to ask you, I saw a picture of your collection the other day of some of your handhelds. I can't remember where I saw it, but you had the limited run Vita case, the one I got you in the pink, and then you also had the one in the blue, which I was surprised to see. Is this something that you ordered after I sent you mine so that you had the other one or did you have it previously? You saw that picture on Adam's profile of me. I, I figured I would give him a couple of pictures ah, to throw yeah, in there. yeah, that's where it was. And actually, no, I bought it after the one that you sent me. So I had my retail Vita in a case, and then I bought my first modded Vita, and you sent me a pink case right around the same time, so it was perfect. Then I got the third Vita, the Russian modded Vita, and I said, well, I need another case. Might as well get the blue limited nice. run case. So now I have both colors of the limited run and uh, everything is cased up except for my two new 3DSs I just talked about. I'm still shopping around for cases for them. I like to get cases that have a little character. Mm -hmm. And um, if I do a YouTube video on, on my collection, I don't want to spoil it, but I put little keychains on each one and the, they all are distinct from each other. So I like that I have the blue and the pink, so it was cool jumping off point. I also got the game Lost Sphere for the Nintendo Switch, as we're talking about Switch games. It's a Square Enix RPG. I don't know anything about it. It was an impulse <laughs> buy on Amazon. So <laughs> Awesome, man. <laughs> so yeah, that's it for me. What about you with pickups? Yeah, I've got a few pickups since we last spoke. Uh, most of them are PS4 games. One of them I actually did get off Gamefly. It's a game I'd never played before, but I just really love the art style in the game, and it looked like really cool when I checked out some videos on YouTube. And that's a game called Flipping Death. Is this one you've ever heard of? Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, it's just a really kind of neat platformer. And like I said, the price was right as a Gamefly sale. Got it. Looks brand new, of course, as all Gamefly stuff does. And uh, happy to play it at some point down the road. Locally, I picked up a copy of The Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus. This is a twin stick shooter. It's more like a kind of a rogue. It seems to be kind of a tough game, but again, it's one of those games that's just weird and funky and has like some really kind of grotesque artwork and uh, just something I've really been interested in playing. I also picked up Yoku's Island Express. This is a fantasy kind of pinball game where uh, you knock sort of this ball around. It has very pinball elements, though it's not like a standard pinball table. And then another that I've heard great reviews of, and this is a game that is a classic all-time arcade game, one of my favorites, and happy to report two days ago, my neighbor picked up a really, really nice Tempest cabinet, and for the PS4, they put out Tempest 4000, which I've heard really good reviews from, from our buddy Duke Togo, he's a big Tempest fan too. And then um, I picked up a few Game Boy games, Game Boy Colors, International Track and Field. I love track and field games for some reason. For the regular Game Boy, I picked up Revenge of the Gator and a copy of Final Fantasy Legend 3. For PS1, as you know, I've been collecting a lot of games for that still. One of the games I picked up was a racing game from a great series, Wipeout 3. I'm trying to get all the games for that, and I think I have one more game to pick up in that series to have them all for the PS1. And then I picked up a copy of Syndicate Wars, which is a game I took a bit of a chance on, but the price was right locally, so um, I grabbed that. 
And then finally, a few Super Nintendo games. I picked up a copy of Kirby's Dream Course, which when we were doing our golf challenge on the site, this is a game that Crabmaster 2000 recommended and said it was a really, really fun sort of golf adaption, not technically a golf game, but uh, he said it was a lot of fun and that I enjoyed it a lot, so I grabbed that. And then yesterday, I picked up a copy of... Congo's Caper for the Super Nintendo and Tecmo's Secret of the Stars, an RPG which hasn't gotten a lot of favorable reviews, but for these two games, the price was so fantastic that I just had to grab them and, like you sometimes, just see for myself if that isn't a good game or not, right? Yeah, that is totally, I think, in the spirit of this show and mm-hmm. my play style and yours for sure. And when you said Tecmo Secret of the Seven Stars, it actually popped into my head. Uh, I'd recommend SNES Drunk's video on that game. I agree that you got to see it for yourself. Because like we talked about last month with uh, that 3DS game I played, Lord Magna, it's a very divisive game, but I loved it. So you never know when you're going to find a diamond in the rough. That's right. And, of course, I follow you on social media, so we're going to get in now to what are you playing, and I'm going to go first, man, because I have seen your updates, and you really put me to shame, man. I mean, it's only been like three weeks. I'm going to be honest, man. The only game that I really played was uh, Nada. Have you heard of that game? No. Yeah, not a damn thing. That's what I've been playing oh, wow. recently. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was an actual... <laughs> you had me. You got me. Yeah, I haven't played anything other than my wife and I are addicted to a phone game called Clash Royale, and there's actually like 2v2 competitions, and we can join and play with each other, and we have a lot of fun with that. We've probably been playing that over the last two to three years. I got out of it for like a year and a half. She kept playing it, and you know, I ended up joining again, and yeah, it's just something fun that the two of us like to do together, you know, and uh, she's not into video gaming, so I'll take what I can get. Hey, very cool. That's good enough. If anyone wants to know what it is, it's uh, basically like a tower defense game. It's just a lot of fun, and uh, I would say check it out, but uh, try not to get too addicted to it. Yeah, I got to stay away from those phone games after, <laughs> you know, after Pokemon Go, after Angry Birds, even Clicker Heroes, which I did play on the PS4, but it is a mobile game. I try to just stay away from that stuff. You know? It can be dangerous and take away from your console time for sure. And Exactly. Uh, in between like the three weeks that we had recorded, I spent, of course, a lot of time editing the last show that took up the majority But, you know, playing some of those phone games just to kind of wind down and relax at night before we go to sleep is pretty much where that type of gaming takes place. Yeah, but that's why God invented the Vita. (laughs) (laughs) My wife doesn't play the Vita. (laughs) Oh, I got you. I got you. All right. Well, let me let me roll right into mine then. I think I left off last month with playing Final Fantasy four. I think when Mm -hmm. we recorded, I had just started it. And that's the first game on my list that I finished. Final Fantasy IV is a game that I tried to play in the past. But I think I mentioned I was doing this dumb like challenge run where you try to power level the main character. But I just couldn't get through the game that way because it was stupid. And I played the game in the traditional sense in the past couple of weeks. And I really enjoyed it. It's only the second Final Fantasy game that I've played outside of the first one. And it's part of my backlog that I created for this year. One of the things on my list was to play any Final Fantasy game that I haven't played yet. So I played four. I played the PSP version on one of my Vitas. 
I really liked it, and I'm looking forward to either later this year or maybe next year continuing to play Final Fantasy games because as a huge JRPG fan, that's a series that I have just a complete lack of familiarity and experience with, and I want to remedy that. So I did Final Fantasy IV. Great game. Nice. Uh, next on my Wii U, the first game I played and completed was Super Mario 3D World. Now, this is a game that has not been ported to the Switch yet, Rich. So if you wanted to play this, you would have to have a Wii U because it's still exclusive. I played Super Mario 3D Land a couple years ago on the 3DS. Have you ever played that game? I have not. So that is a great game. Highly recommend that as well. But 3D World shocked me with how much I liked it. I actually thought it would just be, oh, it's a cool Mario game, first party title on the Wii U. I should just check it out, maybe dabble in it, play a couple levels, whatever. But it was one of those games where I picked it up and I couldn't put it down. It was addictive. I was thinking about it when I wasn't playing it. And I played through to the credits and there's a lot of post-game content, but I've heard it's like extremely challenging. It was one of those situations where I was satisfied to just roll the credits and then move on to the next thing. But I can't overstate that this is like one of the most, to me, addictive Mario games since Super Mario World, which is one of my favorite games of all time. I couldn't believe it, Rich. Yeah, I mean, I know how much you love Super Mario World, and so I was really surprised when I saw your post on social media about how much you really, really enjoyed this game, and I think you even made a comparison to that one. Again, with mainstream Mario titles since Super Mario World, I've only just dabbled in them. Like, I've played Sunshine, I've played Galaxy 1 and 2, and I didn't complete this game, so to speak, like getting every star and beating every level. But to just see it through to the end, I felt driven to do that. And again, to be thinking about a game when you're not playing it, I love that feeling. Like, oh, I can't wait to get home and like beat a couple more levels. I can't wait to wake up tomorrow and beat a couple levels of Mario 3D World like just such a good game and i hope it does come to the switch so more people can experience it i've had sort of a similar experience with mario games i haven't found a lot of joy in playing games past super mario world like you said i've kind of dabbled in things but that's interesting to hear man and definitely one that maybe gets ported to the switch that i can check out down the road uh, if i don't end up buying a wii cool so my next few are handhelds because as I just stated, I love playing modern handhelds. So another game that I had put in my backlog was a game called Trace Memory. And the reason I wanted to play this was because I have a modded Wii and that affords me the opportunity to play games that are out of region or games that you wouldn't be otherwise able to play on a retail Wii. And something that came onto my radar was a game called Another Code R, I believe, which is the sequel to Trace Memory. And it was a European exclusive. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. Like it's already translated into English. I could just play that on my Wii, but I have to go back and play the first game first. So that's why I was playing Trace Memory. It's a point and click adventure on the Nintendo DS and reading reviews of it, it was criticized for being too short and too easy. 
And when I see those four words, that is my siren song to check out a game and look into it a little bit closer because I like games that are not too easy, but I like easy games and short games for the most part. And also I thought, well, I'm not a huge fan of point and click adventures. Maybe this will be a good way to come out of my comfort zone, much in the way that I have slowly but surely come out of my comfort zone of not enjoying strategy RPGs. And now they're one of my favorite genres to dive into after playing Fire Emblem, Shining Force, Vandal Hearts, even Rhapsody, a musical adventure, like all these things that have strategy RPGs. So anyway, point and clicks, want to come out of my comfort zone. But man, this game just didn't do it for me. The story was not super engaging. I kind of didn't care what was going on. The puzzles were not super hard, but they got to a point where I was already not engaged with the story and just kind of didn't care about the game. So it didn't take me long to just dive into using a walkthrough and just kind of check listing the game just to get through it and roll the credits. So unfortunately, I wasn't a huge fan of this, and I will definitely not play another Code R on the Wii because Trace Memory is about four hours long, but another Code R is listed on how long to beat at about 16 hours long. So I'm going to pass on that one. I actually crossed that off of my backlog. So yeah. Now I understand you played this game, but you didn't finish it. Yeah, it's funny. There was a time when I had first played 999 that was actually i think maybe a month or two before we did the show on it so that's been a few years ago i remember playing it around december i really enjoyed 999 i thought it was a you know neat story i love narrative driven stuff and uh, you know point and click stuff puzzles i find a lot of joy in playing those I finished that i played hotel dusk on the ds that was one that i also had a good time with and enjoyed And then I played Trace Memory. I got probably, I would say, about halfway through it and got stuck at a point. And it's funny, it's like, usually when that happens, I'll consult a walkthrough or something to get past that hump. And then from then on, I'll just keep going and won't use the walkthrough. However, for this game, I don't know what happened, but it just kind of fizzled out. It had me interested from the beginning. I thought the story was very, very unique. But yeah, it just had no staying power for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, I think I would have done the same thing if I just wasn't thinking, okay, this game's like three or four hours long, especially if I use a walkthrough. I'll just bust through it and roll the credits, you know? Yeah. I decided to do that. Don't regret my time. Don't feel like it was a complete waste of time, but just not special to me in any way. So that's unfortunate. My next game is kind of another little like throwaway title that could have been a take it or leave it, but I had quite a bit of fun with it and I beat it in one day, which is great. And that is Medal of Honor Heroes, the PSP version played on a Vita. And that's significant because when you play PSP games on the Vita, you can map the right stick to pretty much whatever you want. So if you're playing a first person shooter from the PSP, You can map the right stick to the face buttons or the D-pad or the L and R shoulder buttons to use as camera controls in the way that you would any modern console game. 
And this is a huge improvement over playing on a PSP, not to mention you get the screen resolution upgrade by playing on the bigger screen of the Vita. And if you're using custom firmware like I am, you can use save states and, you know, tweak the graphics to your liking. So anyway, Medal of Honor Heroes was designed more for multiplayer. So the campaign is incredibly short. You can beat the game, quote unquote, in about an hour and a half. But it was fun. It's actually just, a, you know, a Medal of Honor game on the PSP. You're just running around. Uh, you have objectives. Capture this. Steal this intelligence. Hold these three points for 10 minutes or whatever. And you're just running around shooting Nazis and it's just classic good fun. And I posted that it's a good palate cleanser. Like maybe you just played some long RPG and you don't want to jump into some other huge time investment. So this game was cool for that. Yeah, there's something to be said about palate cleansing games for sure. I think it gives your body a little bit of a rest, you know, kind of throwing those in between some longer games. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, so actually, I'm going to save the best for last. I'll tell you what I'm playing now, which is the game Sacred 2. Oh, okay. I, I talked about Sacred 3 last year, I believe, when I played it. So Sacred 3 was decent. Uh, it was a very polarizing game critically. I criticized it for having a really dumb script. And like the voice acting was just this really try-hard, edgelord stupidity. <laughs> Uh, but Sacred 2 is a game that is a thousand times better in every way. I'm playing it on the 360. It's a Diablo-style loot dungeon crawler, grabbing weapons, armor, gold, hacking and slashing your way through dungeons. We talk about these kind of games all the time, and it's one of my favorite genres. It's what I'm currently playing. I don't know if I'm going to stick with it forever, but it's a, just a good relaxing, like, sit in my media room with my projector on and just kind of get lost in this game. But more importantly, just this morning, and this is my last What Are You Playing?, I finished a game called Bayonetta 2. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is I have this game on the Wii U now, but I also had it on the Switch. So I decided to play it on the Switch so I could take it to work and play it when I wanted to. And I got to say, Rich, we talked in our previous episode about Bayonetta, and I would encourage anybody listening to this who hasn't heard that, please go back and listen to that episode. It's one of our best. I think we did a very good job with it. I stated on that episode that I liked Bayonetta 1 so much and that it's one of my favorite games and that I wanted to play Bayonetta 2 as soon as possible. So that's exactly what I did. That's fairly soon as possible, yes. Yeah. Within three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so Bayonetta 2 is almost in every way an improvement on the first game. Wow. There are some things that stuck around, but they kind of incremented in good ways on everything, right? So there's still too many cutscenes, but there's not nearly as many. There's still kind of BS platforming parts, but not nearly as many, and not as many that you're like getting frustrated over. Like I, I never felt like I was frustrated by a platforming section. You still have annoying characters, specifically Enzo and Luca are in this game again, but they're not in it as much. Like Enzo's in it in the beginning, and then after the first couple hours of the game, you almost don't see him at all, which is glorious. 
Joe Pesci. <laughs> right. And I think they changed the voice actor, but they like wrote him in an even more annoying way, which I didn't think was possible after playing the first game. But you'd have to see it for yourself to know what I'm talking about. The one like criticism I have of the game is that the final boss was a little bit underwhelming compared to the first game. We actually talked about the final boss of the first game at length in our last episode, and I said I liked it because it was this huge battle with this godly creature that you had to do all these stages and different things to it. In Bayonetta 2, the final boss is just kind of a stock flying around fighting one dude kind of boss battle. And that was a little disappointing to me, a little underwhelming. But one of the coolest damn things about Bayonetta 2 on the Switch, at least, is that you can buy costumes of Nintendo characters. And a lot of people know about this, but as soon as I could buy it, I got the Fox McCloud outfit for Bayonetta. <laughs> nice. And she's running around in the fox outfit with a tail. She looks like a furry, and I'm not into that kind of stuff, so don't take it the wrong way. But she just looks so <laughs> cool with her fox ears and tail, and she has these little charms of the R-wing hanging off her belt. And uh, instead of her gun, it turns into the gun that Fox has, whatever it's called, a laser or a phaser or whatever. And that was one of the coolest things. And then there's this level like later in the game. And I don't know if this is because I had the skin applied, but it, it was like one of those flying and shooting levels. And I'm flying in an R wing and I'm like literally playing oh, Star wow. Fox as one of the levels. Now, I don't know if that's a Star Fox level in the game. I have a suspicion that it's based on what skin you're using at the time. Maybe if you use the Samus skin, it's something else. It's her ship or whatever. But the presentation of Bayonetta 2 from the Nintendo standpoint, and Rich, this is kind of weird. I'm going to stop myself right here. For this entire episode so far, I've been sounding like a real Nintendo fanboy. <laughs> and I don't know what's going on. I'm talking Wii U, 3DS, Star Fox. What the hell is going on? Man? I don't know, man. What's going on? It's happening to you. <laughs> I thought we were in this PlayStation thing together, man. Yeah. Well, this just goes to show. I just want good games. I don't care what freaking platform they're on. And uh, Bayonetta 2 is spectacular. So... For you, Rich, whether you get a Wii U or a Switch, you can get Bayonetta 2. That's going to be one of your first pickups as soon as you get one of those consoles. Absolutely, no doubt. So that's it. That's it for me as far as what are you playing. Great month. And you're right. I'm, I'm playing a lot of stuff. There have been times in my life where I'm just like, I need to beat as many games as I can just to put them on my list, on the thread, on RFGen, like almost like showing off in a way but right now it's just that i'm in a good groove of playing stuff and the more you play the more you're going to finish games i'm not consciously trying to finish a bunch of games i'm just playing all the time you know what i mean yeah that's a good thing man you should enjoy your hobby and uh, you know what you're picking up yep
minus, as I was told, everything that he touched turned to gold. He's the greatest of the great, I get it straight, he's great. Plain thing, cause his name is known as every state. His name is sure to see him play, will make you say, God damn, that DJ made my day. Like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. He's a maker, a breaker, and a title taker. Like a little old lady who lives in the shoe. If cuts were we can see what we do. Not lying, y'all, he's the best I know. And if I lie, my nose will grow. Like a little with a boy named Pinocchio. Know how to start free go Tricks up for kids, he plays much kids. He's a big bad wolf and yo the three pigs. He's a big bad wolf in your neighborhood, not bad. Meaning bad, but bad. meaning good. There it is. All right, Rich, so as is the new tradition, we're kicking off our Game of the Month discussion with a question of the month, and this time we got a lot of responses from the community, so I'm just going to roll right into them. Our question of the month you came up with, and I must say, well done. Thank you. What console or PC game from your past do you cherish the most and why? I love this question because it gets to the core of why we do what we do, because most of us grew up playing games, and to whatever extent, we're nostalgic about the games, and we have ones that we loved from our childhood, or our teenage years, or even, I can remember games from my 20s that I have extremely strong sentimental feelings for. So this was a great question, and we got a lot of responses, so... Again, let me just roll right into them. So let's start with my friend Corey, known as Turn Around and Run on the forum. He was a guest on the show in January. He said, for me, it is the Nintendo Game Boy. It was the first handheld console ever given to me at five years old. I spent so much time playing with it as one of my earliest and fondest memories. I remember my parents putting me to bed and I'd quietly get up to play Tetris or Super Mario Land. So he went with a console, but he did name two games at the end there and rescued his answer from <laughs> from obscurity. I have similar memories of the Game Boy, and we talked about that in mm-hmm. that episode. So thanks, Corey. Rolling right along to our friend Steven at The Disposed Hero. He said, for me, it will always be Chrono Trigger. It wasn't my first RPG, but back then it was something unique and stood out from the rest. I have considered it to be my favorite game ever since I first played it back in 1995, and that hasn't changed after all these years. Very cool from Steven. Uh, We also played Chrono Trigger a long time ago for the show, but that's worth looking up and going back to one of our episodes there. Moving right along, Wemster, he said, for PC, it's Age of Empires 2, the Conqueror's Expansion. Took an already fantastic RTS and got rid of some of the farm micromanagement so you could focus on army building. Console is Ocarina of Time because that's the first Zelda game I completed over and over, even doing 100% runs. Thank you, Wemster. Next is Travis, Zofar53 from the forum. Not sure I could pick just one, but Lunar 2 is very near and dear to me. 
Not my first JRPG, but it was the first to blow me away with the power of its characters and storytelling. By the end, I genuinely cared about every one of my party members and was emotionally invested. I still haven't played a Lunar game. Me neither. Perhaps that would make a good <laughs> podcast episode and playthrough. Sure. Uh, next is our friend Adam, Bickman2K. For PC, I'd have to say Duke Nukem 3D. It was the first full PC game I ever had. My parents got it for me for my birthday after I played it on a PC Gamer demo CD. For console, it has to be my copy of Earthbound. I loved the game from the first time I played it after renting it at the grocery store. My best friend, now brother-in-law, had it and let me borrow it. Years later, he gave me that same copy of the game along with the guide. That's cool, man. And anyone who knows Adam knows that he always has Ness from Earthbound as his avatar. Very good. Rolling along, we got Retro Nonsense, known as the other Duke. Not Duke Togo. This is Duke0619 on Twitter. He says, Double Dribble. It reminds me of my father. He died when I was young and he loved basketball. My dad was an amazing player and we often shot hoops in the backyard with the basketball hoop that he made himself. He never played double dribble with me, but I often made him watch me play because I thought the game was so impressive and he would appreciate the squeaking shoes, the voices, (laughs) and the close-up dunks. Wow, that is a really good response. Uh, Yeah. That will tug at your heartstrings. Thank you for that, Duke. Hard to follow that one up, but let's keep going. The Cartridge Bros. This is P1 from the Cartridge Club. He said, Diablo 1 and 2, Warcraft 1 and 3, Starcraft, Baldur's Gate, EverQuest, and World of Warcraft all hold special places for me because of the impact each had on me. But the PC game I most cherished is a turn-based strategy game called Birth of the Federation. A friend of mine was attending school at Tuns, T-U-N-S, and every Sunday he would bring three of us to the computer lab and we'd play Birth of the Federation for the whole day against each other with a break for lunch at a downtown pub. Online (laughs) gaming has eliminated those days, but I still remember them fondly. All right, cool answer. Next, we got Buried on Mars. All of my Commodore V20 and 64 stuff I've had since childhood. Everything else can be replaced. And now you had to go in and prod him a little, Rich. You said, but which game? (laughs) Which game? Sorry, the question may not be so clear. The question was clear. It's... (laughs) It's which game? So he said... I don't really have an attachment to any one game specifically in those collections, but they are my most cherished. Yeah. Well, you know how it is. You got to poke that bear sometimes. It's true. Especially when it's Kevin. He does relent finally and says, out of them, I played Ghostbusters and Mission Impossible the most. So good enough. We had to do a little digging, but we finally got his answer, right? Got to name names. All right. So (laughs) speaking of the Pocky X, his answer And this doesn't surprise me, and it won't surprise anybody who knows him well. He says, Silent Hill 2. Beyond the quality of the game, what makes it truly special to me is that the relationships I've built because of it are the ones that define every stage of my life. I would be a fundamentally different person without it. Engineer Mike. Probably either Maniac Mansion or Final Fantasy. I was 10 back in 1990, and both of those games give me good feeling nostalgia 
I can flash back to the fall of 1990 and playing a rental copy of Maniac Mansion while watching The Simpsons and eating Domino's at a friend's house. <laughs> that's a totally 90s picture he's painted there. Yeah, that's, that's pretty great. cool. And that brings up something that I think about a lot with nostalgia we can sometimes pair certain games that were nostalgic with other forms of media, right? Like the music you were listening to when you played it, or like he states here, TV shows he was really into at the same time. So I love when we can like group our nostalgia, like very specifically into these kind of chunks of time. Next, we got Isret, our good friend, Anthony. He says PC game would have to be Command and Conquer Red Alert 2. I played the shit out of it with at Dan VX6 on 56K versus Tinstar and Captain Nintendo, who both had high speed and cell phones to coordinate attacks and still couldn't always beat us. <laughs> and Dan VX responded by saying Rocketeers and aircraft carriers. So they're talking shop on this Command and Conquer game that I don't know what they're talking about, but that's awesome that they have those memories together. Yeah, absolutely. And lastly, we got our good friend Crabmaster2000 who responded on the forum, Mega Man 3. It's my comfort food that I can slam through in less than an hour whenever I just want something I know will hit the spot. Best soundtrack, best master robots, best levels, rush, sliding, E-tanks, even has the Mega Man 2 master robots in it if you're into that sort of thing. Amazing game through and through. I've never heard of this game, Rich, have you? No. I've heard of Mega Man 2, which I know is the best Mega Man game out there, but as far as Mega Man 3, no. Yeah, you didn't know they made a third one. He was close to making the right answer. He just (laughs) added one number to it. Uh, Of course, we tease. Again, what a great month for responses. These kind of questions that hit home close to the heart. We love them. And we love all of our listeners and people who responded to this question. Thank you so much. Oh, actually, I have one more. I asked my wife this question. She said the King's Quest series for her because Uh this is where video games came into her life and she couldn't narrow it down to just one title. She couldn't remember exactly the first one she played, I think, and just said the whole early King's Quest series on PC was just seminal for her to become a lover of video games. So thank you, wife of mine, for that answer. So for you, Rich, what is your most cherished PC or console game from your past and why? My cousin, who was about five years older than me, had an Atari 2600, and I would go over to her house all the time. I would spend the night, but our grandmother would be over sometimes and would watch us play, which is kind of odd to think about. I mean... My parents were of that video games poison your mind generation, whereas my grandmother just kind of loved us unconditionally and just didn't care, just wanted us to be happy. So we would start playing games, and I remember one day we passed her the controller while we were playing Grand Prix on the 2600. Anybody's played this game knows that it's basically a racing game. You just kind of switch lanes going as fast as you can. But when you crash your car, it sounds like someone is being electrocuted. It is the most vile sound in a game. And I remember 
specifically passing my grandmother the controller and saying, hey, you give it a try. And she would play it and she was like having fun with it. And all of a sudden she would crash and she would just go, woo, 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 you know, just kind of just kind of shouting <laughs> out like that. And it was hilarious. We'd be just rolling on the floor, my cousin and I laughing. And uh, I just remember every time we would get together, we would always want her to play with us. And she's no longer with us now. And I remember at her funeral several years ago, my cousin and I were there. We don't get to see each other very much anymore, but that was one of the things that we talked about. You know, that's just such a special memory for me and probably my most cherished memory of a video game. Well, that is a really funny story and a great choice. I'm happy you shared that. Even though you came up with a question here, I think this question was more inspired by my situation with Dragon Warrior the most cherished game for me, I, I mean, I'm going to say it's probably Dragon Warrior, and I'll elaborate on that in a second. But if I thought about it, there are many things like I have many memories of early gaming PC and console and everything else. But the reason Dragon Warrior, it will always be this kind of steadfast foundation of gaming for me is that when I was growing up, my best friend Jesse and I played a lot of NES. We both had different games and we would swap them a lot and borrow and he had good games, I had good games, he had some bad games, you know. So we both played each other's collections, but we both had Dragon Warrior. And this is one of the first games I ever completed and he and I would play it together and swap notes and compare our quests. And it really is something that I cherish. And there's another kind of unique reason that I cherish it. And that is because my copy of the Explorer's Handbook, which is a little strategy guide that you got with the game, is the only thing in my entire video game collection that I own, that I had from when I was a kid. And what makes it very unique is that it was given back to me in adulthood by Jesse when he was still alive. Now, he passed away in 2014 of cancer. He and I did a podcast in 2013 called Eight Generations, and he actually gave me a copy of the Explorer's Handbook and on the air, he explained that it was our childhood copy of that book. And I still have it, and it's in tatters. So I keep it <laughs> sealed in plastic. And I actually bought off of eBay a different copy of the Explorer's Handbook to use for this playthrough. So anyway, Rich, you and I have decided to dedicate this episode of the podcast to the memory of my dearly departed best friend, Jesse Patterson. And man, I miss him. And I think of him constantly when it comes to games, when I'm playing games, I just wish that I could talk to him about them. And that's all we ever did uh, when we were together. Our wives were so sick of us just talking about video <laughs> games on an absolute constant basis. But yeah, we are 
dedicating this episode to him and his memory and it couldn't be a better choice because this is the game that I think of the most as far as when he and I were in grade school playing the NES the quest that we were on was to beat Dragon Warrior get into our participants. So besides you and me, of course, we had Dougley007, Crabmaster2000, Disposed Hero, Duke Togo, Link41, Buried on Mars, Addicted, and Red McKnight. And as of the time of this recording, most of our crew has finished the game. Not a lot of people bailed on it. Red came in a little late, so I wouldn't expect him to be finished by now. But We had a lot of people come in and play the game to completion, which is really cool. A few of us were playing different versions. I know Duke played the Super Famicom version, but I think almost all of the rest of us were playing the NES version. Besides Red, who was playing the Wii remaster, which I believe was Japan exclusive. So good participation, right? Yeah, I thought so. That's a good group of people and uh, upped our numbers from some of our other months that we've had. So it's good to see everyone participating in uh, such a classic game and uh, good discussion on the forums as well. All right. So let's get into some of the release data. Now, Dragon Warrior, which was known as Dragon Quest in Japan. I'm not overstating when I say this is one of the most important games (laughs) in the history of video games, right? Absolutely. So... When I go into the nuts and bolts here, I want everybody to understand that I'm giving a very broad overview. We could do a full three-hour episode on just the history and development (laughs) of this game in particular and the series as a whole. What I really want to do, Rich, in this show is just give a quick synopsis of the development of this game and then get into the actual game itself. And we're not going to talk too much about sequels or anything because I don't think either one of us has played any of them. I just want to talk about the first game and our experiences with it. Now, having said that, I do highly recommend there's a YouTube video that I've watched a couple times now, and this is where I did a lot of my research. It's called The History of RPGs Episode 1 Remastered Dragon Quest Dragon Warrior Analysis 1986. (laughs) And the YouTuber... Uh, username is Mr. Gentleman, and he has a whole series of the history of RPGs. But this episode in particular was just crucial to what I used as my research. So I got to shout him out. Highly recommend checking out that video. I'll just start from tabletop RPGs in the 70s, like Dungeons and Dragons, right? So this was a game that was a little bit more evolved from a board game. So people will get together. You'd have like a dungeon master, you'd have stats for your characters, and you'd go through this game that was 
more than just a board game. These evolved into computer RPGs, which started out as text adventures and then became kind of uh, vector graphic first-person dungeon crawlers. And this is where Dragon Warrior comes in, because Yuji Horii, as a fan of Wizardry and Ultima, used influences from those games to create a game called the Portopia Serial Murder Case. He then expanded on those for Dragon Warrior. He teamed up with Koichi Nakamura to direct this game. What he wanted to do was take the influences of those tabletop games, of those computer RPGs, and streamline them for the console audience. And specific, he wanted to use Nintendo's Famicom system to do that. So what we ended up with is generally regarded as one of the first, if not the first, console RPGs. And it is the prototypical first, quote-unquote, Japanese RPG as we know it. This game was released in 1986 in Japan, and later in 1989 in the United States, it was renamed Dragon Warrior. Now, there's some misconceptions about why it was renamed. The best thing that I know of is because there was a Dungeons & Dragons spinoff called Dragon Quest, so they decided to change the name in North America. I've heard many different things said. I think they're wrong, except for that explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. so it was Dragon Warrior all the way up until Dragon Warrior 7 on the PlayStation 1, and then they pretty sure that's where they started just calling it Dragon Quest around the world. A lot of us will remember getting Dragon Warrior for free with our Nintendo Power subscriptions. Right, Rich? Yep, I did. Yeah, so me too. And as did Jesse and all of our friends and, you know, a lot of people on Twitter that we talked to and the forum. And the reason for this is Nintendo was expecting a hit. So they printed something like 3 million copies. And I'm pulling that number out of my behind. That's not a statistic. (laughs) But they realized that they were sitting on a lot of inventory and basically had to give it away. It's kind of crazy to think that back then. Now we take it for granted that we get free games all the time. Because we have PlayStation Plus, we have Games with Gold, we have Nintendo Online, (laughs) Steam and Humble Bundles and free or cheap games are just ubiquitous in our life. But I remember back then getting a full retail game for free just for subscribing to a magazine was out of this world at the time, right? (laughs) Absolutely, man. And the thing is, games now on release usually average about $60, I would say, Uh, you know, your major A releases. Well, back then, games were still 60 bucks. But if you think about inflation, you know, you would say that they cost more than $60 back then if you compare it to today's standards. So getting a free game, especially a box game, I mean, that was just something beyond belief and just incredible, you know? Absolutely. And some of the benefits of getting the game so late is that by the time Dragon Warrior came out in North America, Dragon Quest III was in development. What we got was actually kind of an enhanced version of Dragon Quest with better animations and more importantly, a battery save as opposed to the password save that was on the Famicom version I should also note, 
and this is very important, the musical composer is Koichi Sugiyama, who is well known in anime and movies and other video games. And even more importantly, that the artwork, at least the Japanese artwork, because we didn't really see this until later in North America, was created by Akira Toriyama, who is an immensely famous manga artist, most notably probably known for the Dragon Ball series. So if you see a Famicom cover for a Dragon Quest game that has Akira Toriyama's artwork on it, and it's very distinct, you know it when you see it, and it is tied to this series throughout its whole history. So that was your core team that was the developers of this game, which was Chunsoft. The game was published in Japan by Enix and in North America by Nintendo. Uh, So once again, that's just really, really, really basic skeleton nuts and bolts of this game getting released. And I certainly encourage our listeners to delve deeper into that because there's a rich history of this game and the series. But for our purposes, we played the original Dragon Warrior and we're going to talk about the game. So let's get into the story Rich, on our outline, we didn't write anything for the story because (laughs) it's not to say there isn't one, but the story is, it's exactly this, save the princess, defeat the dragon lord, right? That's it, and learn about your past. True, yes, I'm glad you brought that up, lest I glaze over the lore you play as a character who is a descendant of Erdrick, and Erdrick, you're told, is this legendary hero. And you have to retrace his steps and kind of prove your lineage to him to progress the quest. So even though the story is kind of bare bones, there is a bit of a lore there, which is great. So yeah, there's not much to the story, but I think there's enough there to keep you going. And the moment-to-moment gameplay is more dictated by the little quests that you have to go on and the little tasks that you have to do, right? Like finding specific items, activating certain things in the game, and so on and so forth. Yeah, like other games from the NES era, such as Castlevania II, Simon's Quest, most notoriously, The NPCs in this game are very helpful and give you clues as to figuring out what needs to be done next. Even without a guide, I think this game is very accessible in terms of figuring out what part of the story comes next and finishing these smaller quests in anticipation of rescuing the princess and then also facing the Dragon Lord at the end. I think you and I are going to differ on that a little bit. Yeah, I know that you are more intellectual when it comes to playing a game without a guide and trying to figure it out yourself. I use the Explorer's Handbook from the minute I fired up the game. I was actually just using the walkthrough. We're going to talk a lot about how this game is, you know, it is the prototype. It is the early example of a JRPG. Like Simon's Quest, some of the hints you get are a little obscure, right? A character will tell you something and you won't know exactly what they're talking about. And you might have to ask somebody on the playground or consult the manual or the explorer's handbook or nowadays perhaps the internet to find out exactly what they're talking about. 
But uh, that's not unique to this game for sure. But like you're saying, you can do it if you pay attention. Yeah. I would say there are games that are much more vague than this game is. And that's probably what I'm speaking about. You know, something like Simon's Quest is extremely vague. This at least points you in a good direction. It might say, check out something to the north. Uh, This town is located in the west. And so it gives you a direction to actually go to and to find more hints. It doesn't spell it out for you like a, a guide would, or in this case, the Explorer's Handbook, which pretty much tells you how to play the entire game. But I think this game, in comparison to others, is a lot less vague, because having played a lot of early Nintendo games, I think this is maybe one of the better when it comes to NPCs. But yeah, there's still quite a bit of vagueness to it, but for me, it seems to point you in the right direction. But a lot of that requires the use of items like keys and things like that. You have to open up all the doors to get these clues or transverse like a poisonous floor or something like that. So, yeah, you do have to take some risk within the game. Very true. So let's go into the gameplay in general. You play the game as a little sprite who walks around the map and you start in a castle talking to a king and you have text boxes and menus on the screen you move your sprite around towns dungeons and castles and then you move it on the overworld map where you engage in random battles with monsters the combat is turn-based and unlike many rpgs that came afterward There is only one party member, and that is you. And you only battle one monster at a time. Every battle is one-on-one. This is pretty unique because it was almost immediately that your player character in an RPG was multiple characters. It was a party. We call it a party system or whatever. So the original Dragon Warrior is a little rudimentary in that sense in that you only play as one character, but that's an important distinction for the game feel and the overall feeling of adventure of the game. You explore, like I said, towns and dungeons and a vast overworld map to slowly upgrade your equipment and your character level. You get gold and experience by defeating monsters. The gold is used to buy equipment, armor, and items, and the experience levels up your character, which increases your attributes like strength and defense and your max HP and MP. You also have a magic system where you can cast spells in battle or outside of battle There are utility spells such as Return, which sends you back to the game's only save point, which is the king. (laughs) That's funny. I sent you a message about that, too, remember? how do I save the game? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't remember. I was like, I'm so used to playing an RPG, and there's always ends and things like that. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to cut this thing off, so I better, like, send a message to Sean or look it up really quick. So I decided for the playground method instead of the uh, internet method. Yeah, that was was a great moment. Uh, But, yeah, there's only only one save point, and that's talking to the king. 
Uh, and we should also note that if you die in the game, you get sent back to the king. But it's not quite a game over, right, Rich? What happens when you die? Uh, you just lose half your gold, oh, basically, and you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which can really suck at the beginning of the game when it's hard to accumulate gold. Toward the end, it's not a big thing. Uh, so yeah, if what I'm describing sounds like every JRPG you've played, then that makes sense because this game. All the way back in 1986 laid the groundwork for a lot of things that are still used in JRPGs. So nothing in this game really happens in real time. It's all done through menu navigation. Whether you're in battle or whether you're just futzing with your character or your menus or (laughs) opening a chest or opening a door or using an item or climbing stairs, which is something that (laughs) thankfully was uh, omitted from, you know, most future games. The menu system is ubiquitous throughout your whole playthrough because, like I said, it's your interface with the game. There's no action. Everything is selected from a menu. Yeah, the menu is kind of odd and can be an annoyance at times. It reminds me a lot of the early point-and-click adventures like uh, Shadowgate, just these kind of simplistic commands. I think it works fairly well for this game, and though some things can be a little tiresome and I think one of the criticisms is that there's really not much of a use of the B button especially in combat but um, this is something that you see in other RPGs sort of later on as well it's not something that is standard to this game and though it might be a little more annoying I mean even games like the Final Fantasy series typically have these types of menu systems and something that's really still alive today but to less of an extent right that's absolutely true and you bring up the use of the B button or the lack thereof and I think we could jump into the forum for a comment from our own crabmaster 2000. He says, It's silly to nitpick little annoyances from a game like this that is so early and foundational. So only one other thing really stood out to me that was a much more minor annoyance. I spent too much time in menus. I had a B button that was unused on the map. Would have been so great to use it to talk to an NPC or use a staircase or search a vacant area or open a door instead of constantly navigating a clunky menu system for that stuff. The stairs seem especially odd since you automatically enter towns, caves, and dungeons when you step on them. So yeah, the stairs thing, you just it is what it is. I don't know. Like Out of all the things where you could say, why is there a stairs button? Like I'll take that as like the worst thing about this game or the worst thing about the menus or whatever. It's just an odd little quirk. Yeah, a minor waste of time, but it's a one second waste of time. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think as you're playing the game and the more time you put into it, it just becomes second nature. You don't even think about it anymore. I would say, you know, from the offset, yeah, a little annoying. I think at one point I was on type of a treasure chest and I kept hitting search. And I was like, why is it not picking this treasure chest up? Why is it not opening it? Well, the correct command is take instead of search. And, you know, search is more for finding certain items in the game that are on a piece of ground where you don't see anything. You're just kind of searching the area. There are some fairly important items in the game that you get later on and that you find that way. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it can be a little confusing. And Kelsey 
brings up a great point about the game. And I think the whole idea of the B button that I was speaking about earlier, I think I was channeling him because I know that I've read his comment. And it's not something I thought about until he posted about it. Yeah, I didn't think about it at all while I was playing the game, to be honest with you. So one thing we have to move into is something that's very prominent in this game, grinding. So the game progression is that you fight monsters that are at a certain level and you level up and then you get gold and you can go upgrade your equipment and you're upgrading your character to fight stronger monsters, right? Mm -hmm. This is very familiar to anybody who plays JRPGs. However, in this game, what we call grinding, which is just getting into fight after fight after fight to accumulate experience points and gold, can be a bit much for some people. Yeah. Now, me and you didn't have quite a problem with it. I won't speak for you, but I will say for myself... I got into a groove with the grinding. I got into a trance. A lot of times I was just watching YouTube videos while I was doing it. I was listening to podcasts while I was doing it. And I did all my grinding with the NES Max, which is my favorite NES controller. And it has turbo buttons on it. So you can get in little fights with low level or mid level enemies and just turbo that a button to just blast through all your fights so that was one method i used for the grinding i also found that the grinding got a lot easier and safer once i hit level 13 and was able to use the return spell because that will send you back to the castle so long as you have enough mp you gotta watch it just make sure you can bail back to the castle to heal up And we should mention there's a guy at the castle that you can talk to who refills your MP just by talking to him. So when you're low on HP and MP, use the return spell, you fill up your MP, you heal yourself with your heal spells, save your game, rinse and repeat, and rinse again and repeat again, right? (laughs) And again and again and again and again. Yeah, so I spent hours upon hours and days doing this, but (laughs) I didn't hate it, man. I like grinding in games. I I almost never have a problem with this. Unless something is really bad about the combat or the music sucks. But then, again, you can mute it or put something else on. I, I don't know. Like Games nowadays aren't nearly as grindy. And even when I was playing Final Fantasy IV, I was joking with you that... I went in there and started grinding like crazy and I got like (laughs) 10 levels and like 18 different spells and I'm like way over leveled because I thought I had to grind for three hours like I did in Dragon Warrior. So the grinding calibration is set super high in this game and it's famous for it to the point where some people would even call it unplayable. So what was your take on the grinding and let's talk about whether or not this game is unplayable. I guess from a nostalgic purpose, it's something that I don't mind. It's something that I'm used to. I mean, this was the first RPG that I ever played. And, you know, I I enjoyed spending the time with the game so much when I was younger that I still kind of feel that nostalgia as I'm grinding through the game now. This game probably defined the word grinding, you know, in our era because it was, I think, one of the first 
where you had to spend a lot of time not exploring, but building up your level so that you could get to certain areas. One thing I should mention is that the map is segregated in certain areas where you're going to get certain types of enemies, right? So at first you have to stay close to the castle. You have to stay close to the inn until you can move up to that next level where, you know, you might run into a ghost or you might run into a magician or something stronger. And so, yeah, I can see how having to stick to certain areas might be bothersome to some people. But for me, I mean, it just feels natural and it's something that I really don't mind at all. However, I will say that I had gotten all of the items in the game probably by level 16. And so to fight the Dragon Lord, I think the recommended level is about level 20, though I think we had some people to beat it a little bit lower, you know, like 19. But even at 20, I think I barely squeaked by. I finished the Dragon Lord on the last hit. If it would have gone one more round, I'd have been gone. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have won that fight. And I went in with full health and full magic. So, um, it, you know, it's kind of a luck-based thing. I didn't get any critical hits in that final fight. We should mention there are critical hits in the game. You can do a large amount of damage. But that point between level 15 and level 20 was a bit of a drag for me. Of course, every time you level up, the experience that you have to earn gets higher. However... The experience that enemies give you and the gold that enemies give you is more as well. But I do feel like there toward the end, maybe they could have increased the experience a little bit more and not made the grind to 20, you know, so difficult. Because I think around level 20, you have to get four or 5,000 experience for that part. Yeah, it can certainly be a bit much. And for some of the people who played updated versions of the game, from what I understand, it's a little bit easier and less grindy. So some more modern gamers might want to go with one of those versions, like the Game Boy Color, the Super Famicom version. Totally agree. And I think we kind of have gotten spoiled by more modern games and even looking at a game from the Super Nintendo like Illusion of Gaia. You remember playing that with Steven. Yeah. Um, you would clear a room out and when you clear that whole room out, that's where you would get your experience. The grinding was very linear. It had a purpose. By the time you cleared all the rooms and got everything you needed, you were ready to fight the final boss. It wasn't grindy. It felt like everything had a purpose and I think that's sort of the direction a lot of games have gone into now, as long as you do all your battles on your way to a boss, you should be able to finish that boss. You don't have to do repetitive grinding. I guess it's good for the more modern gamer. Seems that people really want to bust their way through games now. But like we mentioned back then, you know, when you're paying like $60 a game, that was a lot of money for a kid to have to come up with. And so things like grinding would give you longer playtime with a game. And I think for me, it didn't bother me. I really enjoyed it back then and even now. Fair enough. All right. So let's go back into the forum for some commentary. Again, from Crabmaster2000, he says... I'm all for grinding and have spent far too many hours grinding in some of my favorite games, but I think Dragon Warrior takes it to an extreme that was too much for me. I don't feel like I'm exaggerating when I say 99% of your playtime is spent grinding. I've recently played and beaten some other early RPGs, Wizardry and Bard's Tale, and even though both of those games require a decent amount of grinding also, I feel like they just have more satisfying gameplay loops and are far better paced when it comes to gameplay versus story versus exploration. 
when I grind in other games, I still like to be in that world and take in all the music and sounds and be with those characters. I got to a point several times over in Dragon Warrior when I put on a movie or TV show to help pass the time. The game wasn't engaging enough on its own, unfortunately. Furthermore, we have a quote from Disposed Hero who says, I tend to agree with both points about the grinding. On one hand, I did find it to be relaxing and addictive, and I often found myself saying I would just do one more battle than quit for the night, only to keep playing for another 30 <laughs> minutes or so. This is where the game's simplicity works in its favor. If the battles were longer and more complicated, grinding would have felt far more tedious than it already did. However, at the same time, it is also a little disappointing to look back at the game and realize that there really wasn't much to do other than the grinding. There are very few actual important events that take place, and the grinding really feels like an attempt at padding the game's length. So Stephen here brings up a good point that I want to touch on just briefly, and that is that mental aspect of grinding, that addictive quality of it, where you're looking at your stats and you're saying, okay, I'm close to level 10. Let me just get to level 10. And then you get to level 10 and you say, well, I'm close to 8,000 gold. Let me just get to 8,000 gold, right? <laughs> yeah. And then you just you get to 8,000 gold and you realize you're near some other milestone and you say, okay, let me just grind up to this thing. You know what I mean? So yeah. you're always leapfrogging to the next stat that you want to cross a threshold or a milestone. So I'm, I'm glad he brought that up because that happened to me a lot. Yeah, I think that's important. I think that's what really gets you going in the game as as opposed to the story, which isn't very deep. I think that that, you know, is what keeps you motivated. You said, oh, well, you know, I can do a little more and I can go get the axe. Yeah. And so you, you start looking for areas where you can grind, where you're going to max out on the amount of gold that you can get for your level. And I think that's what gives the game some fun gameplay, you know, other than feeling like too grindy. You know, sometimes you step into those areas where you're like, mm, I better cross back over that bridge or go back north a little bit more because I'm getting into an area where I'm really uncomfortable grinding and I really don't want to lose the gold that I've accumulated to this point. So uh, I'm like you and I appreciate Stephen bringing up that point. And I think it's a very valid one. So some people 
again, would call this game unplayable because of the grinding. <laughs> and I understand, once again, we have a special audio message from a close friend of ours, right? Yeah, we do. So our buddy Duke Togo usually participates in all of our NES playthroughs. He's a big Nintendo guy. And then usually we have him on the show. Well, Sean and I thought this time that this is such a big topic, something that's really special to the two of us. We decided not to have a guest on this time, but I didn't want to leave our buddy Duke out. So I asked him the question. Dragon Warrior has been described as unplayable by some due to all the hours players have to spend grinding out levels and gold. What are your thoughts, and would you describe it as unplayable by today's standards? And here's what he had to say. Hey, Rich and Sean. Thanks for uh, taking the time to have me on to talk a little about Dragon Warrior. Um, You know, the question that you put to me was, you know, is Dragon Warrior unplayable for audiences these days and I really I, you know I would have to say no now I understand it in terms of RPG mechanics it's a it's it's pretty primitive these days but it's a fairly short experience and I don't think it wastes too much time in any individual space now the original NES version granted is a little more grindy than some of the later versions um, for example I played the Super Famicom version where I felt like they they really smoothed that out a little bit. Um, there's still some grinding that's involved, but it's it's not bad. And I understand that some of the later ports, I think it's, there's a mobile port of this game that also kind of has that same idea where they've tried to smooth things out a little bit. But all in all, I mean, this game is maybe a six-hour experience, maybe eight if you really take the time to grind everything to the max and do everything you can. But it's a pretty short and curated experience, which I think is what makes it playable now. It's very easy to understand. I mean, my my middle daughter Maddie, she when we were when I was playing it, she was like, "I want to play some Dragon Warrior," and she's nine, and so she you know I, I grabbed the Game Boy Color version, I threw it in the uh, Game Boy Advance, and she was playing a little bit. I mean, she didn't go all the way through it, but it was very simple for her to pick up. It's not very hard to understand. And she was having some fun with it uh, to, you know, whatever degree she wanted to spend time with it, which is fine. She's nine. I'm surprised that she wanted to do it at all. But I think it just boils down the RPG experience to the basic pieces that you need to make the story work. I mean, there's uh, a narrative that makes pretty good sense as it goes through. You kind of see the the basic story arc. You have a, a nice resolution at the end. You even have that cool option to say, you know, no, maybe I, I don't want to go that way. So, you know, when I hear about you know, mobile games these days or people are playing and they have these energy and you have to wait time in between it allows you to do anything. Um, you know, to me, when I hear that sort of stuff, I think of uh, maybe a little bit of a slog and uh, that really doesn't attract me. But this one, you know, Dragon War, you can take it at your own pace. It, nothing is too punishing. You know, the worst thing that happens is you lose some money and it warps you back. But really pretty early on, as long as you're you're smart about playing the game, you're going to have a good time. So, you know, I would say out there now, you know, if, for, if you've somebody's not played an RPG, I think Dragon Quest is probably a fantastic place to start. You don't really need a lot of knowledge. It's a pretty simple game and it's really pretty easy to pick up and put down. So, um, hey, thanks a lot again, guys, for taking the time to have me do a little spot here on the show and uh, congrats for, for doing the show this long. Great job, guys. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Duke, for that soundbite. We really appreciate your thoughts on the unplayability 
quote-unquote, of Dragon Warrior. You know, I really tend to agree with Duke's thoughts on that, and I just wanted to also point out that I, too, pimped my kid out to grind some of this game for me. (laughs) (laughs) My oldest son played the game, and, you know, with the menus, they're very simplistic, so I taught him, you know, how to attack. He understands math, so watching the numbers go down, he could tell, like, okay, I need to use a heal spell here. So, yeah, he really, really had a good time with the game, and I was even able to pull him away from Fortnite for a bit, which I sent you a picture before the show on your phone, Sean. I don't know if you saw it or not. It just had him with the PS4 controller, a headset on, and a mic, and it just said FML underneath it. So, no, no, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> So, yeah, I like to tease uh, him about playing Fortnite, but, you know, it's something he enjoys. But to pull him away for a while and let him play a retro game was uh, very cool for me. And if I asked him if this game was unplayable, he's seven, he would say no. I mean, it's something he really enjoyed playing and, uh, you know, reminded me a lot of myself when I was his age. That's great. And uh, like you, I agree with Chris there that this game is perhaps more playable than a lot of those mobile games. And what he was referring to is, you know, those cool down things where they try to get you roped into microtransactions. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point that he brought up. In Dragon Warrior, there are no microtransactions. You just have to fight a lot of monsters to get your EXP. (laughs) So uh, that's a great, great point. And I'm kind of a stickler for terminology. And I actually looked up a couple different definitions of the word unplayable because it means something, you know, and as referring to video games, it's a game that cannot be played or is so tedious, complicated, buggy, or etc. as to discourage or preclude playing. So initially, by definition, I thought this game can't be classified as unplayable because it is completely playable in a technical sense. But this definition here, which I'm getting from the Wiktionary, says that a game that is too tedious can be unplayable. So to a certain extent, I stand corrected. And if you classify this game as unplayable, that's a matter of judgment. I think I was thinking of the word broken, which that would mean that some of the systems are not working as intended by the developers or the game designers. Nothing about this game is broken, I don't think. But I'm just going to conclude by saying I agree with you guys. I agree with Chris. This game is not unplayable. Yes, it can be a little tedious, a little, I don't even want to say boring. Again, that's a judgment call. That's a matter of taste. But I've played way more way more unplayable games than this. So take that for what it's worth. And I'm looking at the game with the most rosy of rose-colored glasses. But that's why we went back and actually played it, because I haven't played it in many, many years. Yeah, and I think you and I spoke about this, and uh, I mentioned that the word unplayable is sort of how I look at the word hidden gem. Yeah. It's a buzzword that's really overused and sometimes used, in my opinion, incorrectly. But I think, you know, in you reading that definition, I think the incorrect usage of that word has sort of made it canon where the word unplayable doesn't mean buggy anymore. You know, it's kind of completely changed the definition of that word. But I would in no way, with the classic definition of what unplayable means, I would never say that this game is unplayable. Tedious, 
Yes. Unplayable. No. Right on. All right. So you want to move on to the Explorer's Handbook? Uh, yeah, you know, we never talk about manuals. I, of course, never read them. But, um, you know, I think you can't really talk about this game without talking about the Explorer's Handbook. It's such an important part of this game, and I think an important part of both of our paths, right? Yeah, for sure. And we should note that this game does have a standard manual that is the normal size of an NES manual. The manual I picked up recently because I didn't have one, and I think I mentioned on the show I had to buy another copy of <laughs> Dragon Warrior for the NES because I couldn't find just a manual on eBay. But the Explorer's Handbook is something totally different. It's like a mini strategy guide. And as I stated, it basically has a walkthrough for the entire game, with the one exception that it gets you up to the Dragon Lord, but it offers no strategy for how to fight the Dragon Lord. It just gets you to him, and then you're on your own. But I used the Explorer's Handbook from start to finish to play this game. That's awesome, man. I remember doing the same thing as a kid, you know, and looking over this book, I remember thumbing through it, the backseat of the car, you know, on long trips. You know, not just its usefulness is what's so cool about this Explorer's Handbook. The artwork in it is really neat and kind of gave you a picture of what the items were you're picking up. I remember the first time I saw the flame sword, I was like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing, you know, because that picture of this like orange sort of flame design sword is just so cool. I want to say it's more than a walkthrough, although that's primarily what it is for the game. But it was so much more than that to me as a kid, you know? Yeah, totally. And you bring up a good point because your weapons and armor, you don't see them in game whatsoever. Like mm -hmm. your avatar doesn't change based on what is equipped. You don't see them in any menus. So it was awesome to have a visual representation of what a copper sword actually looks like and what Erdrich's armor actually looks like. And we should mention, too, there's plenty of screenshots in the Explorer's Handbook, so you can see like exactly where you need to go, who you need to talk to. There's detailed maps of every city, so it will tell you this guy's a vendor, this guy's a key salesman, you know, so mm -hmm. yep. uh, it's very in-depth. The one thing that came separately, and I don't have it, is an overworld map. This came somewhere along the lines with the same package, probably, or it was in included in the game when you bought it but the overworld map i had to look up on the internet there's little tiny versions of the overworld map in the explorer's handbook but they're not very useful for knowing where you need to go if you're looking for a specific town or dungeon yeah i mean it's an incredible amount of packet material if you think about it yeah, right no, especially it for an nes awesome game some loot yeah for sure yeah all right well let's move on into the graphics of the game like I said, when we got Dragon Warrior, we were getting kind of a souped-up version of Dragon Quest, which was originally on the Famicom. The NES version has an animated sprite that can face four different directions. And your environments are made up of just different textures. You know, there's grasslands, there's mountains, there's forests. Everything is kind of on a grid, much in the way of like a Super Mario Brothers or a Legend of Zelda where you can imagine a square grid over everything. It's not outlined on the screen, but you could see it with your mind's eye that everything is in tiles. So there's tiles for mountains, hills, grass, towns, castles, 
everything is a tile set. When you are in battle, the one thing that's a little bit more detailed are the enemy sprites. Yeah. And these are great. And I do have a quick comment from the forum from Buried on Mars. He said, I like the look of many of the enemies, even though a lot of them are just palette swaps. That demon knight has to be the laziest one. (laughs) He is just a black outline of the wraith knight. Still, it was a nervous moment the first time I ran into one. And it's funny that he says that because I had the exact same reaction because the demon knight is just a black shadow of the wraith knight. And it's like, oh, oh, shoot, what is this thing going to do to me? Some of those battles, like you run away from them the first time. We should mention that a lot of these battles can go south really quick. Like if (laughs) if somebody casts sleep on you and you go to sleep you are dead. Like a lot of times, you know what I mean? So it's like, oh, I just got put to sleep. Game over. (laughs) You got to hit that stop spell really quick. Yeah. So I'm with uh, Kevin here, Buried on Mars. I really love the enemy sprites. And I think they are primarily what gives the game most of its character. And we should mention that the blue slime is pretty much the, well, not pretty much. He is the mascot for the entire series. I don't know. I just really love the enemy sprites. And I think for a game this early, there are a really good variety of them. You got cute ones like the slime and the ghost. And then you got scary ones like the wraith and the scorpion. And then you got kind of odd ones like the gold man, which is this big gold golem who gives you a lot of gold when you beat him. You got the metal slimes, metal scorpions. So think about this. For a game this early, you had like variants of the enemies. Mm -hmm. Uh, with their own attributes so that's part of the gameplay but it also plays into the graphics and the design of the sprites so rich what did you think of the graphical presentation in general and and the enemy sprites in particular well you know i think that the overworld map is very bare bones and then very plain and not the most exciting One of the things that I did want to mention that I kind of appreciate is that when you're playing the game and you start out and you don't have a shield, your character has no shield shown on him. But when you buy one from the shop, when you get your first one, it appears. For such an early game, I think that's kind of cool and worth mentioning that they took enough time to put that detail in. But as far as the enemies are concerned, for an 8-bit game, there is so much wonderful detail in these enemies. And like Kevin said, yeah, they are palette swaps. You usually have typically three iterations of every enemy, just in different color, or like the Waverns are facing a different way sometimes. But at the same time, the amount of detail that they put into these animations is incredible. You know clearly what everything is, and it looks fantastic, especially the dragons. Those are super highly detailed and look ferocious. They did such a good job with those. But yeah, I I think it's well done. I think there are some aspects, like I said, the overall map could have maybe been done better. I don't know, because I don't know what the limitations were. But uh, yeah, for the most part, everything looks incredible. Cool.
Well, that can bring us right into the music. I'm just going to say I love the music for this. Like when you first boot up the game, like as soon as the game powers on, it's playing this regal theme that would be the Dragon Warrior theme or the Dragon Quest theme forever. And it's like they nailed it the first time, you know. Now, I think, yeah, the overworld map, the town music, they're, I don't know, I don't want to use the word lackluster, but they're just mellow. They're just there. And I've heard a few accounts that the battle music gets really annoying, but I never found that to be the case. But look, I mean, this is an early NES Famicom game. Like, there's only so much music in it. Yeah. But I think what is there is is really well done. Yeah, I mean, it is fairly lackluster all the way around. A lot of it gets really repetitive, and I could see it getting on people's nerves. Like we said before, the battles are short, However, you have to do so many of them in grinding that I could see where the enemy sound might get on some people's nerves. There's not a whole lot of variation. I think the Outworld theme is the same throughout, uh, no matter which area you're in. Uh, I think the dungeon music is similar everywhere. And then, of course, the encounter music is the same. One of the things I did notice and did want to point out is that I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in the final dungeon, the dungeon music tends to get faster as you get closer and closer to the Dragon Lord. I don't know. It's just something I noticed. I don't know if it had anything to do with my copy of the game. I wouldn't think so. And maybe it was just in my head. But, you know, I feel like I recognize that as I was playing this game. No, that is what happens, and I think it's a really good example of some good signposting to know that you're making progress, because that final dungeon is probably the most maze-like and hard-to-find-your-way-around dungeon, and without the Explorer's Handbook, I would have just been lost forever, so... Yeah. And if you're playing the game the way we did, you have to go into that final dungeon at least two different times, because you want to dip in and get Erdrich's sword... And then you're likely not ready to finish the game at that point. So you have to retreat and grind like you and I did Mm -hmm. uh, and then go back into that final dungeon to get to the Dragon Lord. There's a lot of different floors and each floor has like four or five different staircases (laughs) and you have to know which one. And then those final few rooms, uh, you're just walking straight across the room, but you might be doing it in the dark. We should mention the dungeons, some of them, and especially the last one, are dark. So you cannot see any of the tiles on the screen except for the one that your sprite is on. So you will see a completely black screen except for your character sprite. You have torches that you can use, which illuminate a nine-square grid. But you also have the radiant spell, which lights up probably twice or three times that many tiles. Yeah. So what I did, because I have the Explorer's Handbook, I just turned up the volume and felt my way around each dungeon because when you bump (laughs) into the wall, it makes a sound. So you can use the map and say, okay, I got to go straight to the right until I hit the wall, straight up until I hit the wall, and so on and so forth. So (laughs) by doing that, I was able to conserve my magic while we're talking about music and sound, I think the sound effects are really good in this game. And most notably, when you get a critical hit, you really (laughs) know it. And they didn't use the word critical hit. They used excellent move. Yeah. And it just had this really like smack, like 
that doesn't sound good at all, but you know, maybe we could insert <laughs> the actual like, critical hit sound here. It, it was so satisfying when you nailed an actual excellent move. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, man, why didn't you just go buy some eight gold torches? <laughs> That's what I did. I just had a few torches in my inventory so I could see a little bit better. Man, that would drive me crazy listening to wall bumps. But uh, yeah, it definitely can be done. Towards the end game, there's only so much inventory that you can carry it's around. True. Yeah. And uh, you have all these key items at the end of the game. And I wasn't sure which ones I had to keep or whatever. And I don't even know if you can get rid of some of them. But I don't think I use torches at all, man. I got radiant pretty early because yeah. I should say that I... It's funny. I started playing this game like way back in like December and just grinding. I think I mentioned on the show, I was like level 13 before I started actually playing the game. So mm -hmm. I had grinded like crazy, just <laughs> battling and battling and battling before we actually started the playthrough, just so I was like more prepared to play the game and not get caught behind progress to set up the playthrough and talk about the game. So I had like the radiant spell way before you were supposed to. And like, again, once I hit the return spell, I, I, I just had a grinding loop that I was able to, to lean on. But anything else about the sound or music? Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, you know, talking about the sound effects and stuff, one of the other sound effects I really love in this game is the noise when you run into a random monster. Oh, you yeah. know, that sound is so great. And I remember being a kid and just jumping for the first time, you know, <laughs> not knowing being outside of a town that I was going to run into anything. I didn't know about, you know, wandering monsters. And uh, for a while, just was unsettling to me and made me, uh, you know, jump, especially when you get toward the end of the game and you get to uh, some of the uh, much tougher monsters. Well, speaking of much tougher monsters, let's talk about the final boss. Before we get to that, though, I do want to say that there is like a mid-game mini-boss, right? You have to fight the green yep. dragon, and I want to say that it's noteworthy in this game that you actually save the princess about halfway through the game, which is kind of cool, and it's kind of a neat little subversion of expectations, to coin a phrase, and I think it's neat that there's like this mini boss dragon where I don't remember specifically if back in the day I ever thought like, wow, this is the end of the game. Right. But I could right. see that being like a real fake out, you know? Yeah, I could. I guess, you know, at the beginning of the game, uh, the king tells you about the dragon lord. And so I think you know that you have this kind of supreme battle that you have to face and that saving the princess isn't enough. However, maybe you weren't paying attention to that or, you know, in the process of all the grinding you have to do, you forgot about it. After you beat that green dragon, which turns out to be just a regular mob enemy later on in the game you actually carry the princess back to the castle, right? She's in your arms. You get this different sprite, which I think, again, is just a really, really nice touch in the game. Yes, very true. And I did not have to carry her back because I had the return spell because I grinded so much. <laughs> <laughs> I was always afraid that if I did the return spell, then maybe she wouldn't be with me. So I never did it. Oh. Also, there's this like triumphant walk back to the castle. You're like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> Just kind of trotting back, you know, as uh, enemies are still attacking you with her in your arms. So, uh, yeah, I always walked back in the game. 
And just something I wanted to mention about the maps that we didn't really touch on. You mentioned that the only place to save was the castle. The good thing about that is that castle is centrally located. And to get back to the area where you had been previously grinding, usually it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't take too long to get back to those spots. Especially when you get higher and higher levels and things start running away from you, right? So I think they did a good job in uh, designing the game in that way. Very true. And I did most of my higher level grinding at Hawk's Nest, which is like this ruined city that's kind of southwest of the main castle. And like you're saying, it took me maybe two minutes to get over there. And it was uh, very convenient for doing the grinding. All right, let's go back and roll right into the final boss encounter. So you have to fight the Dragon Lord who starts out as just this like little dude with a purple face who looks like a cartoon <laughs> character. But this is, again, in a convention of JRPGs that we have seen to this day and we still see in, in most of them is a multi-stage final boss. So once you knock him down in his wizard form, he turns into this big ass dragon that you have to fight. And it's very awesome, right? Like it's a, yeah. about twice the size of a sprite of any other enemy that you've fought. And the whole screen is black. There's no background. We should mention that like when you fight normal uh, enemies in this game, there's a nice little background behind them based on what environment you're in. But in this, the whole screen is black. It's just very singular, and you're focused in on this big-ass dragon sprite on the screen. It's pretty awesome, right? Yeah, and it's like an Animorph, too, because he's on two legs. So it's part yeah. human as well. It's not like the other dragons that were on all fours that you're fighting. So, yeah, it, it's really cool. He's constantly breathing fire, taking off tons and tons of damage. You're basically just healing and getting one swipe in with the sword, which we should mention, Erdrick's sword is the only sword that can do damage to the dragon. So uh, it's quite an intense fight, but uh, one that is a bit rinse and repeat, in my opinion. And uh, I think we got some comments about that from our buddy Disposed Hero, right? That's right. In fact, he says... The final boss was a bit of a disappointment, at least in terms of actual battle mechanics. It's pretty much just a war of attrition to see who will die first with no real strategy other than heal whenever my HP got low, and at level 19 it was really just a matter of luck. I guess there weren't many options considering how primitive the game is, but I still wish there was more to it. The boss sprite and exclusive boss fight theme were cool, though, and the fact that it was a two-phase fight was kind of neat. So he touches on a few things I mentioned there, and also I kind of agree with him that this battle, more than any other one in the game, was just kind of a math equation to <laughs> sure. me, and I was not cognizant of that at any other time in the game until... I got to this final boss and we should say that the general rule of thumb for Dragon Warrior is that you should be level 20 to fight the Dragon Lord. Just for everyone's information, the level cap in this game is 30. I was at level 23 when I finished the game and I did find that it was just heal whenever my HP gets below 60 and attack every other turn that I'm not. It was just an if-then statement, you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, I, I'm guessing you had a similar experience. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think Steven hit it on the nose with this one. 
I guess, you know, as a child, I didn't think of it as a math equation. I thought of it as hit and then heal, hit and then heal. And just being at the end of this game for the first time, it was very exciting. And then taking the Dragon Lord out was just an overwhelming feeling of joy for me. So I, I really didn't think about it that way. But now, you know, as a 42-year-old man playing this game, I see sort of the rinse and repeat factor of this game. I see how unexciting this battle is compared to other games that I've played. But, you know, even in games like Chrono Trigger, there's a lot of that going on. There is some strategy to it. There are more spells, and you can use spells in those games as opposed to this one where you really want to conserve your healing power. But there's definitely a pattern that you just have to stick with in uh, defeating those enemies, and it doesn't vary a whole lot. So even a game like Chrono Trigger that's accoladed as being an incredible RPG does suffer from a little of that as well. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I mean, in a menu-based RPG, even I'll just bring up Final Fantasy IV, which is in my most recent memory, having finished it very recently, there were the same kind of battles. And there are even spells in that game where you can see how much HP the enemy has. So in certain battles, you might want to keep tabs on that and then keep tabs on your own HP. And then it just becomes a tit-for-tat math equation like I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of unavoidable. And I think more games after this one mix things up with kind of more spells, more robust uh, attacks, and more phases. We only, quote-unquote, have two phases here. Like I said, that, that was pretty amazing at the time. But You know, I remember when we played Kingdom Hearts, the final boss took like three hours to beat and had 10 different phases or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but still the skeleton of the game is going to be how much HP versus damage you can do versus damage they can do versus healing. Like it, it does boil down to a certain essence at a certain point. It's just how much do they spice it up with different mechanics within the battle? All right, man. Well, I think we've touched on most everything I can think of. Uh, I want to start rolling into our final thoughts. And let's start, as we do, with our correspondence on the forum. So let's go to Disposed Hero once again. He says, After having played a few Dragon Quest games now, including the most recent iteration, it's really cool to see many familiar themes that have persisted throughout the series' entirety. Many of the classic enemy designs are still used in the modern titles, and I even recognize some short audio cues such as the level up chime. After seeing how so many of the classic RPG franchises have evolved for better or worse and have changed so drastically, it's nice to see a series that sticks so closely to its roots. While there are many valid complaints that can be levied against the game, I still found a lot to enjoy and really like the game overall, and I'm willing to overlook most of its faults considering the time that it was released. For 1986, this game is really nothing short of amazing and is one of the real innovators of the gaming world, laying the groundwork and foundation of an entire genre. If I had been 10 years old in the late 1980s, I could see myself getting way into this game and losing an entire summer to it. So it's no surprise that some of you guys have this love for it. Although I'm really glad I played it, I don't think I would ever revisit the NES version. But I would really like to instead play one of the remakes for a more streamlined experience. (laughs) 
So that's cool, Rich. You and I are looking at it nostalgically. Chris as well, Krabby. So it's cool to see uh, a little bit of a younger blood kind of <laughs> look at this game and go back into it and still pull out, you know, with an appreciation for what it was doing at the time. So, yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh if anything, from the comments that we've read and from what I've seen on the forums, people like Steven and then Crabmaster, who we'll hear from in just a minute, you know, they're critical of the game in a lot of their posts. And for good reason, you know, it's how they feel about the game, whereas, you know, we're looking through it through nostalgia goggles. Obviously, it's impossible to separate those things. But what I like the most is, you know, especially with Steven's post, is that there's this appreciation for the game. And even though it probably wasn't the most exciting RPG he's ever played, he's played other games in the series and can kind of link up those things to this game and finds a great appreciation in it and understands where we're coming from having played it as we were growing up. Right on. So speaking of Crabmaster, let's roll into his final thoughts. And he says, Even though the story was light, I liked it a lot. I liked that saving the princess was merely a mid-game objective and not your final goal. I thought it was quite clever that she gives you her love, quote-unquote, as a usable item to check your EXP progress on location. The fact that you can make a decision to join the Dragon Lord instead of <laughs> confront him is awesome, even if it doesn't turn out well. Collecting legendary items and armor is always fun, and it was great that they really were the best equipment in the game, and you didn't end up fighting the Dragon Lord with something other than Erdrich's sword and armor. Solid final castle stage, which was challenging to navigate, but not quite to the point of frustration. So for Krabby there, even though he had some trepidations about the grinding and the archaic nature of some of the elements of the game, it sounds like he came away with a more positive overall feeling of the game upon finishing it. Uh, so we appreciate, as usual, Krabby and also Dispose Hero and anybody else who ever chimes in with, our, with their final thoughts. So let's roll into our own, Rich. Yeah, so... I love this game with all my heart. It is one of my most cherished gaming memories. And I should mention that when I played this game in 1989 or 90 or whenever it was, I didn't play another RPG for another like 23 years or something. I was never into RPGs to the point where I never played them at all until about 2012, 2013 when I started getting into them. Now it's one of my favorite genres. And it's cool that I have that as a gaming foundation. It's cool that I have these memories. It's really cool that it was Jesse's favorite game and that I can just hold on to my memories of him as a friend and playing that game with him when we were children and then talking about it uh, more recently again, which we, we have as a little appendix on the end of this episode. And... Uh, man, this game, for whatever faults it has with grinding, they're like nothing to me. Like, I'd rather grind in Dragon Warrior than do a lot of other things that I do in games that frustrate me on a regular basis. So <laughs> I can't speak highly enough of this game. And even if you just play it for the history lesson, as we've commented and a, a lot of our forum commenters have said, 
it's not that bad of a game. You're not grinding for 60, 70 hours. It really is a short game. So you just got to settle in, relax, use a turbo controller, and uh, <laughs> and just go for it. <laughs> and I think no matter what your gaming style is, whether you're modern or classic or whatever, it's worth the history lesson and it's worth the experience because you'll come away with uh, just kind of having a respect for all the things that this game did that mm-hmm. we still experience today. It's really hard for me to, to overstate how I feel about this game. So I'll kick it over to you. All right, man. I appreciate it. As far as how I feel about this game, I have to kind of not only look at this game as sort of a history lesson, but look at sort of my history. And uh, this game came around at the perfect time for me. Uh, When I was younger, I was in Boy Scouts. And uh, for most people, Boy Scouts is about camping and uh, first aid, learning how to help other people and, you know, respect. And my experience was similar to that. However, my troop was just an awesome, rugged group of guys. There were four things that we believed in. Heavy metal, alcohol, Dungeons and Dragons, and football. And not necessarily in that order. So my experience was one that was uh, sort of bathed in vices. And D&D at that time was something that was kind of looked at as a vice. I don't know if you remember, there were all these stories about kids killing their parents over playing Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. All these urban legends that were just ridiculous. So for me, D&D was something that was very taboo, but something that our troop members, we would get around and we would play D&D at night at Boy Scout camp. And I loved it. I loved being this other person, having this character on this piece of paper and the math behind it, watching the dice roll, the stories. There's nothing like it. I don't play D&D anymore. I have a neighbor that still does that wants to get me back in it. And I'm very, very tempted, although I have so many other things going on right now. But it was a great time in my life. And Around that same time, Dragon Warrior came out, and this was the visual version of what I was doing orally and, you know, on paper. And so for me, that was an incredible time in my life to be able to see this as a video game. So it became a perfect video game for me. I still have my cartridge from when I was a kid that I had gotten from Nintendo Power, And I think I texted you, I tried to play it, and I cleaned it and everything, and it would not work. And so I was really devastated by this. And so what I did was I went, I bought a $5 copy, put it in, it played. When I was done with my playthrough, I took the board out and put it inside my old shell. Because I wanted to still have that same game that I grew up with. And I think that probably says the most about how much this game means to me yeah absolutely well that's pretty awesome and i'm glad that both of us were able to play the game on original hardware which i don't yeah. usually do i'm a bit i'm big into emulation and the comfort of living standards that comes with emulation like <laughs> safe states and whatnot but I decided to play this on the original hardware. Now, I don't have my original copy. Like I said, I have two copies that I bought in my adult life. 
And boy, I was just hoping that the save battery would hold up so I could get through the whole game. So. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> Fingers crossed the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's kind of cool that we both played. Uh, I, well, I know you're going to play on original hardware, but for yeah. me, I thought it was important to do that. So I'm glad you uh, told that story of your cartridge there. All right. So let's wrap it up and roll into what we're playing in the future uh rich you got april what should people be playing as they listen to this yeah like we mentioned on the last podcast in april we're going to be playing limbo and inside these are two dark puzzle platformers by play dead games should be a lot of fun i think sean and i are both playing this on the ps4 am i correct in that Ah, I actually played my Xbox 360 version. Ah, okay. It's funny you brought that up because the Xbox 360, for those who are into physical versions, came on a three-pack with Trials HD and Explosion Man, which are also really fun, fun games. So (laughs) I have a copy of that as well. There you go. So for those listeners who are into physical collecting, you can grab that for the 360 or obviously the PlayStation 4, which includes Limbo and Inside. But yeah, I actually finished Limbo a couple days ago. I played it on the 360 and I cannot wait to talk about it. And I can't wait to play inside because Limbo, I don't want to spoil the conversation, but it really stood the test of time for me. I was very surprised how much I was still engaged by it. It's a great, great game. And I can't wait to play inside and talk about both of those with you. Yeah, I can't wait to play them either. And I'm really glad to hear that you enjoyed your second playthrough of Limbo. Speaking of games, we can't wait to play and also talk about together right we're gonna do that show live from austin texas you and i yeah i can't wait so in may we're gonna play detroit become human and we are actually known as fans of quantic dream and david cage games it's for better or for worse from some people (laughs) right right so uh listen for all their faults and you can go back and listen to our episodes on all of their other games we just still enjoy the distinct style of a quantic dream game warts and all <laughs> so we are going to play Detroit Become Human which is their most recent effort uh exclusive to the PlayStation 4 and yes rich this will be amazingly the first time we meet in person and we're actually going to record live Which will be interesting because when I had Corey here, that was our first live guest and he was sitting very close to me, huddled, speaking into the same microphone at my little computer desk. So I wonder if we're going to have to do that (laughs) to record our whole show, which will be interesting. So We should uh, make a spectacle out of it, go to a coffee shop so that we seem very important doing this podcast and have some background noise. Yeah, there you go. That'll be fun to edit.
And that will do it for another episode. Thank you for listening and for participating in the playthrough. Extra special thanks to Chris, a.k.a. Duke Togo, for recording an audio clip for the show. In May, we will once again check out a Quantic Dream title, and this time it is their most recent effort, Detroit, Become Human, for the PlayStation 4. How will it stack up against the other David Cage games we have played in the past? Log on to rfgeneration.com to let us know. And now, dear listeners, I present to you a very special audio clip from the Eight Generations podcast. Eight Generations was a show that Jesse and I recorded in 2013. It just so happens that in our first episode, we had a quick discussion about Dragon Warrior, and I know it will shed some light on why the game and the Explorer's Handbook are so incredibly important to me on a personal level. Stay tuned and enjoy this audio clip. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next month on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. go into um i want to go into this is like a fun section um but like the retro memories section i think like i said saying we i gave one which was not even the one i was thinking about of playing civilization one with my father but um one that (laughs) this is kind of a funny one but i i think it kind of speaks to something bigger with video games when we were kind of starting out but um, you would obviously rent a lot more video games and we would always yeah. rent from um, Royal Video, which was our local store um, before Blockbuster. Yeah. Um, and a cool aspect of that is I would rent RPGs a lot. I remember renting Dragon Quest before I owned it. And since there were two save slots, you usually had the person who played it last. Um, the, and last rent, the last, the last guy rented. who rented okay, it. Right. And in... This when I rented Dragon Warrior, um, it was the person's name was Fartman, <laughs> right? That. All capital letters. <laughs> so what was kind of cool is like you would go see Fartman, and he was pretty far in the game, and like you could play around and try everything <laughs> right. out. And then you would, but I wouldn't delete it. Like I would then play on the second save, and then I rented the game later, like weeks or months later, and Fartman was still there. So it oh, wow. was almost like this communal. <laughs> playing of dragon warrior people are just leaving them there leaving far i mean i guess because it was funny or what um but 
I, you know, I think it's worth talking about more maybe another time, but the, the rental aspect, I think, was a huge deal. I mean, mm-hmm. I think a lot of Friday nights were sort of like, I'm going to, you know, yeah. I'm going to go out. My parents are going to rent a movie. I'm going to get a video game. It might be complete crap, but, you know, and mm-hmm. get to try it out. And, uh, but yeah, Fartman, I'll never forget. All capital letters, Fartman. Uh, and that was, that was literally my first introduction, I think, to a role-playing game was with Fartman and Dragon Quest. Yeah, mine was definitely, uh, again, like I, I, that was the only RPG I played until about six months ago, right. my entire <laughs> yeah. life. And uh, I still like that game, and I still actually... I do too. I still play it every year, believe it or not. Oh, that's I will play awesome. through it, I, yeah. I haven't gone through it, like I've just, you know, fired it up and yeah. messed around, kill a few slimes, yeah. but... Uh, I actually think now I wanted to ask you about this because like I was thinking like oh it would be cool if I had anything from my original collection like when I was a kid or mm-hmm. whatever but I have that um explorer's handbook oh that you yeah gave to me mm-hmm. now where I know you got that from somebody else but did that like that came that from that was either from Nintendo Power or when you got the game free with Nintendo Power right um, the one you gave to me was that one of ours that just circulated back. Yes. So that's awesome. Like that. Yeah. I was thinking about like it's so cool to hear that right now. Yeah. Because that is making me think that like that was an original piece. Yeah. That was one of the first things that I own. Again, yeah. getting it free from Nintendo. Power. Right. And now I have that. It's like one yeah. of my most cherished. Yeah. Uh, I may still. I should check. I may still have. If you remember, I used to laminate everything. Yeah. So I had a lot of laminated maps of Nintendo roleplay. Zelda maps. Zelda maps. Yeah, from the pullout, yep. like the centerfold pullout from Nintendo Power. Uh, Dra- now, Dragon Warrior is one of the only nostalgic collector's items I have. I have a boxed. Dragon Warrior with all the inserts, the the oh, styrofoam cool. thing, so the game sat upright, the ads, the thing for Nintendo Power. Yeah. Um, so I that's actually, just I just cool. have the cart, and I yeah. have that, again, that Explorer's Handbook, yeah. which is just so cool. Yeah, yep. I would, <laughs> this is uh, another, well, I have mostly retro memories, but I would go through that Explorer's Handbook and not trace, but copy all the swords and shields as like drawing and like I would draw the whole inventory of the entire game just based off that. That's awesome. Yeah. Somebody should, I'm sure it's already on the internet. I was going to say somebody should scan that. And yeah. Because it. it's, it's definitely worth checking out. It's yeah. so cool. And it also came with, I don't know if you, I laminated it, but it was like an index card and it was each level how many experience points you needed, what spell you got, how what how your stats increased and stuff like that. And it was sort of and it would be like, what areas could you go to? So like I would have the map and then the index oh, okay. cards so would be like, all right, level thirteen, now I can go to Rimular and get my key and like <laughs> Right. Yeah, so, and to this day, like, you know how just sort of like the Konami code, like you have this thing running in your head, and like, when I'm playing Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior, I know, all right, level three, you go to the Erdrix Cave, level five, you can go to the first town, level six, you go to this place, then you get the Copper Sword, you get, like, I, that game is like a puzzle in my head that I can close my eyes and see, like, where you go, what level, what you buy, and, and that kind of thing. That's awesome. I'm gonna have to play it like i like i said i've been intending to play it again yeah but, uh, yeah i'm gonna have to do that and it's an, it's funny because it's short like when i was a kid i think it, it probably took me months and months and months and i thought yeah, it was like yeah. sometimes it's like i remember i had to grind for three days to get enough gold for this armor and then like you play it again it's like oh yeah that was like 20 minutes <laughs> like right. it just so it, it's 
I still think it's playable. I mean, it's simple, but in that way, it is it is perfect. There's something about the totally unadulterated. You are one person. You hit an enemy. Okay, so I hit an enemy for five hit points. I gain a level. I hit him for ten hit points. Mm. There's no there's no shorter or closed feedback loop than right. that. I right. am immediately better than I was a minute ago, and I think that's what kind of draws me to that game in particular because it's like, all right, I couldn't kill a, sc- a scorpion. Now I can. Yeah. And in another level, he doesn't even touch me anymore. Yeah. Like, it's yeah, just that, awesome. that immediate how kind of good you get. 